In the AM. Good morning, all. It's six minutes after six AM on this Tuesday morning. We're in our nine days format here at JM in the AM. That lasts until Monday when we head back into our regular uh, format uh, between six and nine AM. Hope you're doing well on this Tuesday, and thank you very much for joining us. The nine days format here, uh, to a large degree, means the incredible lectures and the wonderful historical accounts of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, we have uh, chosen as the series to open up our nine days format, and we did a couple of the lectures yesterday. Uh, the incredible 5,000 years and five hours. It's the history of the Jewish people, five different lectures. Uh, this one that we're about to hear is part three, from Ravina to the Rambam. And uh, Ray Beryl Wine is set to discuss this important topic and this important section of Jewish history with us here at JM and the AM. I remind you that uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, series Information is uh, available at 1-800-499-WEIN, and also you could log on, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, for all the information about all the different things that he has released over the years. It is quite an unbelievable collection. Uh, JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine, from Ravina to the Rambam, Part 3 of his 5,000 Years and 5 Hours uh, series. Uh, we'll have plenty to talk about today, including reminders about tomorrow night's very important uh, Stop Iran Now rally. We'll do that and plenty more between now and 9 a.m. if you keep it here at JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture uh, will cover approximately 650 years uh, between the end of the Talmud and the death of Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maim and the Rambam. At the... Uh, conclusion of the editorship of the Talmud in about the year 550, uh, the Byzantine Christians, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, gained control of the land of Israel. And uh, they, in their determination to convert everyone to Christianity, uh, stated that people that did not convert would be killed. Many, uh, Mos- not Muslims then, because Islam hadn't begun yet, but many of the uh, native population uh, converted to Christianity. The Jews, however, were very, very stubborn about it. And therefore, the Byzantine Christians began a systematic uh, destruction of the Jewish community in the land of Israel. And they intended, uh, it really is the first uh, evidence of, a, uh, of an intended genocide against the Jewish people, completely to destroy the Jewish people. 
The Roman Catholic Church in the West had its own problems. It was sinking into the Dark Ages. Uh, the uh, pagan tribes had uh, conquered large sections of the Roman Empire. So even though that the church, uh, the, the Western Church was also very inimical to Jews, uh, but they really didn't have time for the Jews. They were busy with other things. But the Eastern Church, the Byzantine Church, uh, really made a concerted effort to destroy the Jewish people. And they would have succeeded had it not been uh, for the rise of Islam. In uh, 622, about uh, 70 years after the completion of the Talmud, uh, Muhammad arose in uh, what is today the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, and uh, he preached a new religion. The new religion was based upon Judaism. It was much more monotheistic than Christianity in the sense that it did not have a trinity, a father, a son, a holy spirit. It didn't have any of those things. And it didn't have uh, the question of Mary. All of the things that made Christianity uh, semi-pagan in Jewish eyes uh, did not exist uh, in, in Muhammad's religion. He also refused to allow uh, any form, any uh, mosque contains absolutely no idols, forms of worship, no symbols, nothing. It's an empty room. And uh, Muhammad was convinced uh, that because of these adjustments, the Jews would convert, would become his supporters and followers. Now, he had bad experiences with Jewish tribes that lived in Arabia. Some converted to the new religion. Uh, some uh, did not. Some actually fought him. And some tricked him. So that if you read the Koran, the Koran has many differing things to say about Jews. And it depends which passage of the Koran you want to read. It has very complimentary things to say. From the time when Muhammad uh, uh, courted the Jews and felt that they would become part of his support. And then it has very negative things to say. Uh, from the time when it became evident that the Jews were going to reject Islam and uh, that uh, all of his efforts to woo them uh, were, so to speak, for naught. Because of that, uh, you have today in the Muslim world the ability for extremists to say terrible things about the Jews and back it up with quotations from the Koran. You also have people who are able to say that we can live in peace with the Jews and the Jews should be respected and we should be tolerant of them and be able also to support those ideas in the Koran. So the Koran is very flexible uh, and it has always been used that way by the Muslims themselves depending upon the situation. Christianity was a proselytizing religion. Islam was also a proselytizing religion. And Islam proselytized by the sword. And uh, it swept the entire uh, Middle East. Uh, came out of Saudi Arabia. But within 50 years from the time of Muhammad, almost the entire Middle East was Muslim. 
And uh, that stopped the Byzantine Christians. The Byzantine Christians were driven out of the Middle East by the Muslims. And the uh, beginning of the uh, long-running enmity between Christianity and Islam, which would uh, lead to crusades and to all sorts of other things, and uh, which today is sub rosa, but is present in certain areas and perhaps in the attitudes. All of that uh, was created by this contest between Islam and Christianity for control of the Middle East. The Jews came to a settlement with the Muslims early on. And the settlement was based on the fact uh, that the Muslims recognized that the Jews would not convert to, Christian, uh, to uh, Islam. But the Jews agreed uh, that they would, in the Muslim world, assume a position of being a second-rate citizen, of being what was called a dhimmi. And the dhimmi was that the synagogue would be an obtrusive, uh, that Jews would uh, not demand too much from their Muslim rulers. Uh, Jews would have a very low profile. Now this would change when the Muslims come to North Africa and Spain because then the Muslims needed the Jews. But basically the attitude was that the Muslim world would not uh, persecute the Jews as a whole even though individual Jews were always uh, discriminated against. Uh, if a Muslim killed a Jew there was no penalty. If he robbed a Jew there was no penalty. But uh, generally speaking the Muslim world accommodated the Jews far better than the Christian world. In the Muslim world there were no crusades, uh, there were no pogroms per se, uh, there was no holocaust. Uh, the Muslim world uh, somehow came to this accommodation with the Jews. And the Jews came to the accommodation with the Muslims. The Jews never came to an accommodation with the Christians or with Christianity. Not theologically, uh, not emotionally. And uh, therefore, uh, we'll see, uh, not in tonight's discussion, but in next week's discussion, uh, the difference of the attitude uh, that towards Jews who were secret Muslims and then came back to Judaism and were always accepted without question in the Jewish world, whereas Jews who converted to Christianity and tried to remain secret Jews, when they came back to Judaism, always had a hard time. The Jewish uh, reaction to Christianity was uh, emotional, and it was very strongly negative simply because of the history and the events that went with it. So you have now... This Muslim world, uh, throughout the uh, 7th century, the Muslim world expands, and the Muslim world now believes that it will be able to conquer Christianity completely. And the Muslims uh, take over Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, all the way, all of North Africa, and then... Uh, they come to, uh, in the Middle East, they come to Tur what is today Turkey, Greece, the Balkans, until finally, in the year 732, uh, they are at the doorstep of Vienna. 
And here is one of the major battles, uh, pivotal uh, struggles that occurred in human history, because all of you, the history of Europe would have been different. And Charles Martel, the French emperor, uh, the commander of the Christian forces, defeated the Muslims outside the city of Vienna, the Battle of Tours, and the Muslim tide receded. And Europe now remained safely Christian. That had a great effect on the Jews. Had the Muslims won that battle, uh, then uh, Europe today would be Muslim. And in fact, uh, Christianity could very well have disappeared off of the face of civilization. So that's a pivotal uh, event. The Jews were concentrated in the country of Iraq, of Babylonia. That was the main Jewish settlement. Uh, Seventy to eighty percent of the Jewish world lived there. And that was a, an interesting place because it was neither Christian nor Muslim originally. And uh, as late as the 700s, uh, the Jews enjoyed a great autonomy. Uh, they ran their own show, so to speak. Uh, they had the Reish Galusa, the head of the exile, who had temporal powers. He could collect taxes, he could flog people, he could put people to death. And you had the great academies of learning, the Babylonian yeshivot, which concentrated again on the Talmudic study and on the development of uh, Torah and the explanation of the Talmud, the re-editing of the Talmud, etc. There arose a split in Islam. And Jews are not the only ones that are divisive. It's, a, uh, it's common to all faith in the world. Uh, Christianity today has uh, numbered over 600 different denominations. The Muslims uh, have about 30 different denominations. And when it comes to matters of religion, the other 29 are going to hell, right? Because I'm the only one that's right. And the main division in Islam uh, was and is between the uh, Sunni branch and the Shiite branch. And the Shiite branch, Muhammad had a son-in-law, Ali, and then when Muhammad died, there was the usual discussion, and then it became a uh, division, and then it became a battle over succession. Son, son-in-law, this son-in-law, that son-in-law. And uh, in Iraq, there was a, uh, the man was called an imam, an imam is a holy man, a uh, religious leader. And in any event, uh, one of the imams disappeared. When he disappeared... His followers said that he did not die, he's coming back. Well, he's, he's about 1,200 years late. But that's the basis of the Shiite religion. The Shiites are waiting for the return of that imam. They also took a stricter interpretation of the Koran. The Sunnis had invented uh, a type of an oral law, so to speak, to be able to adjust uh, the uh, Koran to life. And these two groups split off. Most Muslims are Sunnis. Uh, the Shiites are concentrated in Iraq, in Iran, which is a Shiite country, and in parts of Lebanon and Syria. There are other branches of Islam that broke off. 
but the Sunnis and the Shiites are the main branches, and they have had many, many fierce wars between themselves as to uh, not just uh, philosophic wars, but wars with weapons. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died uh, for these causes in Islam. The Jews were able to walk the tightrope. And uh, the Babylonian community continued. But the Jews were now faced with a challenge. Every, everything that happens in the world is a challenge. And you cannot lock out ideas, and you can't lock out events. So when Christianity came, the challenge of Christianity to Judaism was clear. And the Jews uh, rejected Christianity. Even Jews who throughout the centuries converted to Christianity rarely did so out of conviction. Uh, they did so either for uh, personal motives of gain. Uh, the great uh, composer Gustav Mahler, for instance, uh, wanted to be the musical director of the Viennese Philharmonic Orchestra at the turn of the century. And uh, the Viennese Philharmonic Orchestra, the Vienna Philharmonic, was and is one of the uh, prime orchestras in the world. And the board of trustees told them openly that no Jew will be the conductor of the Vienna Philharmonic. So Mahler converted, became a Christian. And when he became a Christian, he was appointed the musical director. However, what happened was that the orchestra sabotaged him because the orchestra thought he was still Jewish. And therefore, they rarely, if ever, played well for him. And Mahler's main reputation as a conductor was achieved when he was the guest conductor for the New York Philharmonic in the early 1900s, where uh, the orchestra played uh, the notes that were uh, written. But that's an example of, uh, you know, Jews converting out of accommodation. Uh, there also were Jews that were forced to convert when, when we talk about the uh, conversos from Spain. A few hundred thousand Jews converted because they didn't want to die and they didn't want to leave Spain and therefore uh, they converted. But Christianity as an idea uh, rarely took hold in the Jewish world. It was, not, uh, it was not the religion of choice. Islam posed a different problem. Because Islam uh, was uh, in its early stages. Uh, it had a great deal of philosophy to it. It was much closer to Judaism. Uh, the main difference, except for the observance of the mitzvot, uh, lay in the fact that one had to accept Muhammad as God's prophet. And the uh, formula that one had to recite is there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And that made you a Muslim. Uh, so the Jews weren't willing to accept Muhammad as a prophet. But in the overall scheme of things, Islam was a challenge. And therefore there arose within the Jewish people uh, for the first time uh, what we could call the study of Jewish philosophy, the creation of Jewish philosophy, in order to counter the philosophy of Islam, and in order to counter Greek philosophy, which the Muslims kept alive. After all, the Christian world was in the Dark Ages. It was, you know, everybody was illiterate. Less than 1% of the Western world could read or write. 
And the only people that kept the flame of scholarship alive were the monks in their monasteries. But as far as the people were concerned, I mean, the great Charlemagne couldn't sign his name. I guess if you're Charlemagne, you don't have to sign your name, but, but he didn't know how to write. And that was common. Uh, King Arthur, uh, the legend is, also could not sign his name. Uh, reading, writing, it was uh, the, the Western Europe sank into, uh, it, it lost all contact that it had with the Roman world and with the Greek world that preceded it, with all the culture, all of that disappeared. And uh, the uh, attempt of Christianity to deal with the pagan tribes and its success in converting them made Christianity more and more a religion of superstition. Uh, more and more pagan because all of the pagan ideas and all of the pagan ways were incorporated within Christianity and all of that uh, served to be a very strong line of demarcation between Islam and Christianity as far as Jews were concerned so for the first time you had the necessity for coming up with a Jewish philosophy a Jewish set of ideas how to explain the world and how to explain the Jewish belief in a world of uh, Greek and Arabic philosophy. The Arabs also uh, were the forefront of civilization and mathematics. Arabic numerals is what opened up mathematics for the world. Without Arabic numerals, I mean, if you had to multiply with Roman uh, characters, uh, you know, it'd be very hard to get out of the fourth grade. And uh, the Arabs uh, kept alive the study of mathematics, uh, in advanced mathematics, geometry, trigonometry, rudimentary form of calculus, all were part of the Arabic world. The Arabs also were uh, the ones that preserved the medicine and anatomy. Uh, the Western world was absolutely superstitious. Uh, those who claimed to have been doctors were murderers. And that remained uh, part of uh, the Western society uh, almost till our time, till the technology changed. George Washington had pneumonia, so they bled him to death. So he died because he had no blood. Today, you know, two good penicillin pills. And, uh, and generally... Uh, all sorts of ideas regarding the human body uh, were full of superstition. The whole Middle Ages is just one great age of superstition. And therefore it is no surprise that the great Jewish doctors of the Middle Ages were almost all Svartim who lived in the Arabic countries, uh, not Ashkenazim who lived in the Christian countries. Because the Ashkenazim also believed in the prevalent medicine of the time, which uh, really didn't do much for anyone. In the Jewish community of Babylonia, there were two main positions. One position was, as I mentioned, the Reish Gelusa, the head of the exile, who had temporal power and was subject only to the Caliph of Baghdad. And the second one was the Gaon. Now, the Gaon was the head of the yeshiva. And there were two main yeshivas. Sura and Pumpadita, but there were other smaller yeshivas as well. And who was the 
leader of the community uh, uh, rotated, so to speak, between Sura and Pumpedita, which one was the Gaon. Now you have here a uh, difficult situation automatically. If you have one person as the head of the religious community, and one person as the head of the uh, temporal community, and so if they agree every time, you got a wonderful community. But if they disagree, uh, so then you have problems. And the more they disagree, and the more bitter the disagreement, uh, so then uh, you have really problems. One of the exilarchs died, and he had two sons. The oldest son, uh, who claimed by the fact that he was uh, the oldest son, the right to succeed his father, was opposed by the Gaoni, by the two heads of the local yeshiva, for undoubtedly legitimate reasons. And his younger brother was installed as the exilarch. This is about in the year 700. What happened then was that uh, the older brother uh, did not accept it well, and he uh, kept on uh, agitating in the Jewish community against the Gaonim. Uh, the Gaonim reported him to the Caliph for conducting uh, anti-Jewish uh, and disrespectful behavior, etc., and the rabbis, the Gonim, the Jewish community, was protected by uh, the, uh, the Muslim authorities. They enforced the rules. So when they called this older brother in, and they said to him, how come you're doing this to your own rabbis? He said, they're not my rabbis. I'm not a Jew. I have a new religion, new form of Judaism. And that's how the Karaite movement was born, the Karoyim. He became the founder. His name was Anan. There's a synagogue here in the old city, the Karite synagogue, which is named after him, Anan ben David. And uh, he said, the rabbis have got Judaism all wrong. It's, uh, they made it all up. And that the only Judaism that counts is the written Judaism as written in the Bible. And that the Talmud and the Mishnah, all of that should be disregarded. That's just an invention, fictitious invention of the rabbis. A little of what he said uh, is a throwback to the ideas of the Tzdokim, of the Sadducees that I mentioned to you last week, who also maintained uh, that the uh, oral law, the Mishnah, and the Talmud were not binding upon them. The Sadducees disappeared from the Jewish scene. But now the Karoim came. And they called themselves Karoim from the word Mikra, meaning the, to read the Bible literally. Only problem is that when you read the Bible literally, you get, you're not in a lot of problems, as you read any book literally. Every book requires interpretation. And therefore the Karoim uh, said that, uh, says in the, uh, in the Chumash that uh, you shall not have a fire uh, in all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath, and they had no fire. Sat in the dark. The rabbis interpreted that as making fire, but that you can certainly have a fire, make it before Shabbos, set the Shaun Shabbat, do say, you know, there's not a problem. In many respects, 
uh, they had a much more severe religion than rabbinic Judaism. Their Shabbat was certainly much more severe. They could not leave their homes. Uh, they had no fire, as I mentioned. So uh, in the winter, it's cold and dark. You're always eating cold food. The idea of, that's mentioned in the Talmud, by the way, uh, that Jews eat hot food on Shabbat. Uh, the Eastern European Jews call it chond. Uh, but every Jewish community throughout the world has some food that it eats hot on Shabbat. Is The Talmud says, To show that that's not the interpretation of the verse. To show that fire is allowed on Shabbat. And therefore we have hot food. And it became uh, such a, uh, a requirement that if a person did not have hot food, he was automatically suspect. Perhaps he was a tzdoki, a karoi. Nevertheless, in spite of all the rabbinic opposition, for the next 200 years, the Karaite movement grew. And it became very strong. Uh, one could estimate that perhaps a third of all the Jews in the world were Karaites. And were entire communities. Uh, the Egyptian Jewish community was almost completely a Karaite community. When Maimonides came there, in the late 1100s, and he moved to Fostat outside of Cairo, uh, he, uh, he writes that he came to, it was a Karaite community. He changed them through the force of his personality, uh, through persuasion, through example. Uh, but even at the end of the life of the Rambam, there was a substantial Karaite community. Today in the Jewish world, there's a very small Karaite community here in the land of Israel, and that's about it numbers uh, in the hundreds they did not survive the exile but this split within the Jewish world also forced rabbinic Judaism to have to explain itself uh, to write uh, polemics and books uh, to show where the Karoim were wrong and where they were right so you had now uh, rabbinic Judaism, so to speak, under attack from many sides. You had Islam, you had the Karoim, and they had to come up with answers. Now, the great, uh, the great uh, defender of rabbinic Judaism was one of the last of the Gaonim, uh, Rabbi Sadia Gaon, who in the ninth century. Uh, was the Gaon in Babylonia. He was a very strong person. He and the Reish Gelusa uh, fought each other bitterly. They both excommunicated each other. It was a uh, it was a very, very controversial time. He uh, did a number of things. Uh, the first thing that he did is he regulated the Jewish calendar. And Jewish people live on the basis of the calendar. We have a permanent calendar. Uh, beginning in the uh, end of the 5th century and the early part of the 6th century, the old calendar, which was based upon the actual sightings of the moon, was canceled, and the permanent calendar that we have today was installed. This is the end.
permanent calendar is a genius of mathematical and astronomical calculations, and it is only off a relatively small amount from true time. For instance, the Christian calendar had to be changed. Uh, the old Justinian calendar, Julian calendar, was so out of whack uh, that they had to go for 11 days without counting anything and then begin the Gregorian calendar that we have now. That happened in the Middle Ages. Jewish calendar has never been readjusted. It's off about 11 minutes. But uh, this calendar was a source of controversy. Uh, again, the, uh, there was a rabbi in Jerusalem by the name of Ben Meir who said, why should we listen to the rabbis in Babylonia? The rabbis in Jerusalem should have supremacy. And he recalculated the calendar, and according to him, Pesach came out on a Wednesday, and according to uh, the rabbinic calendar, it came out on a Friday. So you had a part of the Jewish world that ate chometz, and a part of the Jewish world that ate matzah. This went on for a number of years until Rabbeinu Sadio's uh, opinion was accepted universally. So that's one battle that he fought. The second battle he fought with the Karoyim. And he, more than anyone else, uh, broke down the Karaite philosophy, uh, broke down their ideas and their popularity, uh, from about that time onward, from about 900 onward, the Karoyim, uh, that was the high point of the Karaite uh, success. From that time on, it declined. But what he did then, in Arabic, he wrote a book of philosophy, the first Jewish book of philosophy. It's translated into Hebrew as the book of Emunot V'dayot, Faith and Opinion. It's not based on Greek philosophy, but it has rather uh, Arabic overtones. And in it, Rabbeinu Sadia explains, uh, he defines God, he defines the Torah, he defines Judaism, he explains the mitzvot. And it was a very, very powerful book for its time. It's been translated a number of times from the original Arabic. Uh, but today it's a book basically for scholars alone. It has very little influence in the Jewish world. But it represented a departure. Somebody got up and said, I'm going to explain Judaism, and I'm going to explain it in the framework of the time that we live in. I'm going to explain it according to prevailing ideas and philosophies. By the end of the ninth century, the Jewish community in Babylonia started to decline. There were various reasons for it. Europe began to wake up from the Dark Ages. Uh, the economic situation uh, in Babylonia worsened. And Jews began to travel. And a large number of Jews traveled to North Africa, which was still Muslim. And they settled especially in Morocco. Fez was a major Jewish city, Kairouan was a major Jewish city, and the Jews settled in very well with their neighbors in Morocco. The people in Morocco were either Berbers or Moors. The Moors were dark-skinned, the Berbers were mountain people, they were both Muslims, and the Moors and the Berbers crossed the Straits of Gibraltar from Morocco, 
and came to the Andalusian Peninsula, to the Iberian Peninsula, to what is today Spain and Portugal. When they came to Spain and Portugal, they started coming in the middle 600s, and they kept on coming. They conquered the entire peninsula. The Jews came with them. And Jews were in Spain as early as 670, so that the Jews lived in Spain for over 800 years. The Jews who came with the Muslims to Spain came as equals and not as dimmies. The Muslims needed them. The Jews became the diplomats. The Jews were linguists. The Jews became the financiers because the Jews had the network of relatives all over the Mediterranean basin. And the Jews invented all sorts of what today are modern things, letters of credit, checks, you know, paid to the order of. Uh, when the Geniza exhibit was here last year, uh, they exhibited checks written in the 1100s in the Jewish community. The Jew wrote a check, he said, he wrote to his cousin and he said, in the man that bears this check, give him 300 dinar." And therefore, the Jews were essential for the commercial development. And they became part of the uh, governing group uh, that actually ruled Spain. So we have Jewish prime ministers, Jewish generals in the army who commanded the army of Spain. It's interesting that the same man that was a general uh, wrote an introduction to the Talmud, which is printed in the back of every... Uh, Talmudic uh, publication that we have. So it's hard for us to imagine, you know, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein being the chief of staff of the, uh, the American army, right? It's uh, just a wild thing. But the Jews were uh, powerful. And they kept on coming. So the Babylonian Jews went to North Africa, and from there they went to Spain. And that was the origin of the Spartans. Also, uh, many of the Jews who had previously lived in the land of Israel also moved to North Africa and eventually came to Spain. And uh, there was a golden age of the Jews in Spain. Uh, for 350 years, almost 400 years, uh, the Jews were untouchable. They became wealthy. There are beautiful palaces in Spain today. One of the Alhambras is a palace of a Jewish prime minister. Uh, the Jews uh, uh, had high positions, uh, they built ornate synagogues, they didn't hide it anymore, and uh, the Jews and the Muslims coexisted. The Jews uh, took over uh, many of the ideas of uh, that society. The Jews became poets, poet, poetry in Hebrew and in Arabic. Uh, the Jews became mathematicians, the Jews became philosophers, the Jews were linguists, they were diplomats. In fact, one of the most interesting uh, side currents in Jewish history is that at this very same time there was a Jewish kingdom in the Caucasus in Russia, kingdom of the Khazars. The Khazars were a wild tribe, Asiatic tribe of people that somehow converted to Judaism. Later on, we have the famous work of Rabbi Yudah Levi called the Kuzari, uh, which perpetuated the legend uh, that the Khazars wanted to give up paganism, and they invited the uh, 
a representative of the three monotheistic religions to discuss with them which religion they should follow, and they chose Judaism. Whatever the story was, there was a Jewish kingdom, and the Jewish kingdom lasted for 250 years. It's not clear, but uh, the Jews that come from that part of the world, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, all of the Caucasian, uh, almost Asian Jews, uh, many say they are descendants of the original Khazars. But in any event, the Prime Minister of Spain wrote a letter to the King of the Khazars, and as one Jew to another, you know, he said, how you doing? What can we do for each other? And he proposed an alliance between them, and that this alliance somehow would benefit the Jewish world. Nothing came of it, but it was, uh, it was, uh, this is a high point in Jewish history, where the Jews are controlling in Spain, and the Jews have a kingdom in, uh, in the Caucasus, and that somehow uh, the exile looks promising. A second group of Jews from Babylonia, again in the uh, early 800s, were invited to come to France by Charlemagne. And Charlemagne gave them uh, not only equal rights, Charlemagne promised them a land and uh, imperial protection. And Jews came, therefore, to uh, what is today France, the German Rhineland, and they settled. Uh, they settled in Worms and in Spires and in Mainz, those three communities were the main seats of Jewish learning, and they settled all over France. Small numbers, but they came, and that's the beginning of the Ashkenazi. The Sephardim were much larger in number and greater in influence. It's estimated that in the year 900, uh, there were only about five to 10,000 Ashkenazim in the whole world. And out of those five, 10,000, uh, grew into 12, 14 million before uh, the First World War. But what does remain with us is that the Ashkenazim have a very small DNA base because we are all from the same uh, family. We're all basically married relatives. And because of that, there is a prevalence, unfortunately, of certain genetic diseases which are common to Ashkenazic Jews throughout the world. And uh, now uh, steps have been taken for genetic testing before people get married to determine whether they're the carriers of those diseases, God forbid. But the reason is because there's so few Ashkenazim. Now, the Ashkenazim were far different than the Svardim. They lived in a different world, first of all. The Svardim, uh, the, the Svardim had equal rights and they were prime ministers. The Ashkenazim were nothing. The Ashkenazim lived at the sufferance of their Christian neighbors. The Svardim uh, were in the government, and they were in literature, and they were in the arts. The Ashkenazim were only in Torah, in nothing else. Uh, the Svardim looked uh, at their uh, Muslim neighbors as equals. The Ashkenazim looked at their Christian neighbors, who were illiterate, brutal, violent, and most of the time alcoholic, uh, they looked at them with disdain. 
And this different attitude uh, shaped the different communities. The Ashkenazim were led by a man called Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom, the son of Yehuda, who was called Moor Hagola, the light of the exile. And he had a yeshiva in Mainz. He came from the Balkans originally, and then he came to Mainz on the Rhine River. And he established the major Ashkenazic yeshiva and the major tradition of Talmudic learning amongst the Ashkenazi. Rabbeinu Gershom is also famous for certain uh, social laws that he enacted in the Jewish world. He forbade polygamy, which uh, the Svardim until the state of Israel still practiced. Uh, he uh, passed a uh, ruling uh, that no woman could be divorced against her consent, against her will. Her consent was necessary. Uh, he uh, passed a ruling that forbade anyone from reading anyone else's mail, which guaranteed the Jews as being the couriers of business throughout the Middle Ages. And people wrote on the back of the document the Hebrew letters, Beis Ches Dalet Reish Gimel, Becherem de Rabbeinu Gershom that this is written under the ban of Rabbeinu Gershom. And that was enough that nobody ever opened it. In a world when the secrecy of privacy was almost unknown, the Middle Ages there was absolutely no privacy, personal privacy or any other sort of privacy. And Rabbeinu Gershom suffered terrible tragedies himself. His son converted to Christianity. The, uh, the rabbis recorded that when his son died, he sat 14 days shiva. Seven days because of the death and seven days because of the fact that he died a Christian. Throughout Jewish history we see that uh, no one has a contract, no one has a guarantee, and that things happen. And only God can sort the whole thing out. In any event, Rabbeinu Gershom, when he died had uh, three main students who continued the yeshiva in Mainz. In the year 1048, an eight-year-old boy came from the city of Troyes in France to Mainz to study Torah. His name was Shlomo Yitzchaki. We know him as Rashi. He stayed in Mainz for 17 years to study Torah. And he absorbed within himself the entire uh, transmission of the Torah from Rabbeinu Gershon and from his three Rabbeim. And in fact, the, the entire Talmudic tradition back to Babylonia. And Rashi is one of the pillars of the Jewish world. We cannot imagine the Jewish world existing without Rashi. And when he returned to Troyes, he wrote these great commentaries to the Bible and to the Talmud, uh, which made these books accessible to all Jews throughout all the ages. Rashi is the great teacher of the world. Perhaps no one has had the number of students that he has had. And uh, every Jew prides himself that he knows a little Chumash with Rashi. And from the time that Rashi was written, his commentary was written, almost no copy of the Chumash of the Bible 
has ever been printed without his commentary being present. And Rashi became the father of Ashkenazic Jewry. Eighty percent of all Ashkenazim have some relationship to Rashi's family. So Ashkenazic Jewry developed as a strong Torah Jewry, but had no outside interests. And the Ashkenazim supported themselves by being vintners, owning wine, by uh, money lending. So today it has a better name, it's called banking. But then it was a pejorative term. And uh, by being export-import people, uh, we see already that Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's grandson, uh, was dealt in the diamond trade. And that was the Ashkenazim. But the Ashkenazim faced terrible times. The uh, first crusade in 1096, the second crusade in the 1100s, the third crusade decimated Ashkenazic Jewry. And then in the year 1240, uh, the king of France, Louis IX, burned all the copies of the Talmud which existed in France and Germany so that all the yeshivas had to close. And the Jews left. The Ashkenazic Jews left, and they began to go east. Eventually, they would, be, they would settle in Germany, in Bohemia, in parts of Austria, and eventually most of them would end up in Poland and Lithuania and begin Eastern European Jewry. The Svartim, on the other hand, uh, thought that they would never leave Spain. The first trouble for the Svartim occurred in the 1100s, when a fanatical Muslim group, the Almohads, uh, staged a rebellion and conquered Spain. And the Almohads said... Uh, all the Muslims that ruled until then were uh, really infidels. They allowed the Jews to have too many rights. Uh, the, uh, it's it's uh, forbidden for Jews to uh, be uh, in the government, etc., etc. And they began to persecute the Jews. The Almohad reign lasted for about a century. And when it ended, uh, the Jewish community was much more subdued. The second thing began to happen in the 1100s and would continue inexorably over the next 300 years. And that is called the Christian Reconquest. The Christians pushed across the Pyrenees from France down into Spain. The northern part of Spain began, became Christian. And the Christian monarchs always pushed south, south, south until eventually at the time of Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, they drove the Muslims out of Spain. Once they drove the Muslims out of Spain, then the Jews were in their hands, and they uh, would perpetrate uh, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, the destruction of the Spanish-Jewish community. If Rashi is one pillar upon which the Jewish house rests, the Spaniards produced the other pillar. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, the great Rambam, Maimonides, and he was, uh, about him it is written on his tomb, Mimoshiad Moshe Lokom Kemoshe. From Moses till Moses there arose none like Moses. And the Rambam defies description, as Rashi does also. That one person could do all of that. And when he was 15 years old, he was forced to flee from Spain because of the Almohad persecution. Moshe had a brother, David, 
and they had a contract between themselves that David would support Moshe all of his life, and Moshe would become the great man of Torah. And in turn, uh, part of the share of the reward in the world to come would go to his brother. And David was a great merchant, and he was uh, also he dealt in diamonds and spices. And for most of the Rambam's life, till the Rambam was about 52, uh, he was not a doctor. He was, not a, he was nothing except a scholar, because his brothers supported him. The Rambam, however, had one of those minds, one in a million. The Rambam studied medicine, mathematics, astronomy, pharmacology. And the Rambam had the entire Torah, you know, like the original computer. And the Rambam set about to organize the Torah in such a way that it would be understandable and accessible to everyone. Rambam wrote three main works, any one of which would have made him immortal. When he was a young man, he wrote the commentary to the Mishnah. It was written in Arabic. It's been translated into Hebrew, a number of different translations, but the original is Arabic. Rambam purposely wrote it in Arabic because he wanted that everybody should be able to read it. And Arabic was the lingua franca of the Jews of Spain and the Jews of North Africa, the entire Mediterranean area. Second book that he wrote, which he spent 20 years on, was the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah took every law and attitude in Jewish life, as recorded in the Talmud, organized it, and wrote it in perfect Mishnahic Hebrew, and it remains until today the book of Talmudic study amongst Jews. The first question that they ask in the yeshiva after we finish reading the lines in the Talmud is, what does Rashi have to say? And then after Rashi we say, what does Maimonides have to say? After that you can continue. But without doing that, then you're know, then you nowhere. The Mishnah Torah, the Rambam wrote without showing his sources. And the Rambam also said that if you have my book, you need no other books. So God got even with him, because there's no book in the history of the world that has ever spawned as many books as that book. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine will continue on this uh, amazing journey from Ravina to the Rambam, which is part three of his 5,000 years in five hours. More coming up. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored... WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Reminder, tomorrow night, 5.30 p.m., Times Square, that's where the big rally's going to be. Stop Iran now. That's the hashtag. That's the theme. There'll be many distinguished sponsoring organizations, many distinguished speakers. I hope that some of the elected officials will be courageous enough to come on out and make their voices heard that Iran must be stopped. We'll find out tomorrow night. Weather's supposed to break. Clouds today with a high of 92. Then tonight, 69 degrees. Tomorrow, uh, going up to 87. But again, by tomorrow evening, hopefully, um, things will not be as uh, as warm as they have been. Golly, it's all in the background. There are news from Israel coming up. Plenty more on this Tuesday of our nine days format at JM in the AM. I thank you for tuning in. And again, please spread the word. The big rally is tomorrow night, 5.30 p.m., Times Square, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue. 
New York City. Let's make sure there's a uh, massive showing in the Stop Iran Now rally for tomorrow evening. Galay Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Tuesday is next. Boker Tov from J.M. Nehemian. <laughs> בפעם השנייה השבוע פרצה שריפה גדולה סמוך למכללת תל חי. שלושה צוותי כיבוי מנסים להשתלט על הלהבות. מספר עובדים מאכסניה סמוכה פונו מהמקום. ילד בן 11 נפל מעץ ביישוב רכסים סמוך לחיפה ונפצע בינוני. כתבנו קובי מנדל מוסר שצוותים של מד"א פינו את הילד לבית החולים רמב״ם כשהוא סובל מחבלת ראש. מזג האוויר בלי שינוי של ממש. ולסיום העמוד הפופולרי סטטוסים מצייצים חוזר לפייסבוק. כתבתנו שירה הדס נקר. בהודעה בחשבון הפייסבוק האישי שלו כותב מנהל העמוד אבי לן לפני חצי שנה פייסבוק סגרה את הדף המשפיע בישראל ואלפי הפוסטים נמחקו כלא היו עד שתוכרע בבית המשפט תביעתנו להחזרת הדף הקודם החלטנו לפתוח דף חדש בפייסבוק כזכור העמוד המקורי הוסר בעקבות פרסום סטטוסים ממומנים אלה החדשות שעורך הדר שיפר
J.M. in the A.M. That's the uh, news from Israel, of course. We'll continue with Rye Barrel Wine. Actually, we'll conclude this lecture of uh, Ravina to the Rambam in the 5,000 years in five hours from Rabbi Barrel Wine, and then continue with more here at J.M. We do have a couple of interesting articles to uh, update you with regarding the situation with the Iran uh, reaction, with the uh, reaction of the uh, Iranians and of uh, some folks in the United States to the deal uh, that was agreed upon last week. Rally is tomorrow night, 5.30. Make sure to be there, 5.30 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. at 42nd Street, 7th Avenue, New York City. Please do your best to be there and stop Iran now. Rabbi Barrel Wine information about all his lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or to the web, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. wrote the commentary to the Mishnah was written in Arabic. It's been translated into Hebrew, a number of different translations, but the original is Arabic. Rambam purposely wrote it in Arabic because he wanted that everybody should be able to read it, and Arabic was the lingua franca of the Jews of Spain and the Jews of North Africa, the entire Mediterranean area. second book that he wrote, which he spent 20 years on, was the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah took every law and attitude in Jewish life, as recorded in the Talmud, organized it, and wrote it in perfect Mishnahic Hebrew, and it remains until today the book of Talmudic study amongst Jews. The first question that they ask in the yeshiva after we finish reading the lines in the Talmud is, what does Rashi have to say? And then after Rashi, we say, what does Maimonides have to say? After that, you can continue. But without doing that, then, you know, then you're nowhere. The mission of Torah, the Rambam wrote without showing his sources. And the Rambam also said that if you have my book, you need no other books. So God got even with him because there's no book in the history of the world that has ever spawned as many books as that book. Last year alone, I saw over 300 books were written regarding Maimonides' Mishnah Torah. There's this, uh, the Rambam himself writes that somebody once came and asked him, uh, where did you get this law from? He said, the man said, I looked through the entire Talmud, I couldn't find it anywhere. Where did you get it from? So the Rambam said, for a moment, he stopped to think, he said, it's, uh, I got it from Gittin, Seches Gittin, Tractate Gittin. So the man said, let's, so they took down tractate, and they went over it word for word, the entire tractate, and the law wasn't there. And the Rambam said, then I realized that I should have put notes. The man left. He said, the moment he left, I remembered that it's in Yevomus. So I sent a special messenger to catch him and bring him back, and I showed him where it was from. But the Rambam said, he himself saw that... Uh, but, I mean, the, his command of the Torah, his command of everything, just impossible to believe. Finally, he wrote the guide to the perplexed, the Moran of Uchim, which became the Jewish philosophy book of the Middle Ages, based mainly on Aristotelian philosophy, uh, different completely than Rabbeinu Sadius and Munas Videos. And the, uh, that book became a source of terrible controversy. In fact, Jews actually burned the book. In a spate of uh, 
zealousness, overzealousness. The, the Rambam, the, was such a giant that he eclipsed almost everyone else, just as Rashi did amongst the Ashkenazim. And uh, when the Rambam died in 1204, uh, he was in Egypt. His brother had been lost in a shipwreck, and the last uh, 14 years of his life he practiced medicine in order to support his brother, his widow, and his nephews, and his own family. And he uh, became the court physician for the emperor Saladin, who was the caliph in Cairo, and he was the uh, doctor for the caliph's harem, for the women. Uh, because, as he ruefully put it, uh, the caliph only trusted him. And But because of his influence on Saladin, uh, who, by the way, defeated the crusaders, defeated Richard the Lionhearted, drove the crusaders out of Jerusalem and out of Palestine, the Jews were able to come back to Palestine. And that was the influence of the Rambam on the uh, king, on the emperor, on the Arab emperor, to allow the Jews to return. This concludes tape number 420, entitled Ravina to Rambam. J.M. and the A.M., there it is, part three of the uh, lecture series by Beryl Wine. That one, in fact, entitled Ravina to Rambam in the 5,000 Years in Five Hours, just one example of uh, thousands of incredible lectures that Rabbi Wine has. We'll continue with that series in a moment. Information about all of this, it's 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or rabbiwine.com. Again, that's rabbiwine.com. What we keep talking about, and for good reason, the uh, rally tomorrow night, and uh, we continue to encourage people to contact their public officials on every level, but certainly members of the House of Representatives and members of the United States Senate, to discuss the the deal with Iran. United States Secretary of State John Kerry said a speech by Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei on Saturday vowing to defy American policies in the region despite a deal with world powers over Tehran's nuclear program was, quote, very disturbing. That's the language that uh, Secretary Kerry used when the Supreme Leader of Iran vowed to defy American policies in the region despite a deal with world powers over Tehran's nuclear program. He called it very disturbing. He said in an interview with Saudi-owned Al-Arabia Television, parts of which the network quoted on Tuesday, I don't know how to interpret it at this point in time except to take it at face value, that that's his policy. But I do know that often comments are made publicly and things can evolve that are different. If it is the policy, it's very disturbing, it's very troubling, he added. Ayatollah Khamenei told supporters Saturday that U.S. policies in the region were 180 degrees opposed to Iran's. At a speech in a Tehran mosque punctuated by chants of death to America and death to Israel. Even after this deal, our policy toward the arrogant U.S. will not change, Khamenei said. Several Gulf states have long accused Tehran of interference, alleging financial or armed support for political movements in countries including Bahrain, Yemen, and Lebanon. 
Kerry said the U.S. believed its Arab allies had the ability to confront Iranian interference in the region. He said, I think President Obama's belief in our military assessments, our intelligence assessments, are that if they organize themselves correctly, all of the Arab states have an untapped potential that is very, very significant to be able to push back against any of these activities. These are the statements of the Secretary of State of the United States who proclaims that Iran's vow to defy the U.S. is, quote, very disturbing. So many are wondering how national Jewish leaders or those who uh, identify with uh, leadership of both the United States and in many ways of the Jewish community are going to react uh, and what statements they're going to make regarding this deal with Iran. I refer, of course, to those who are uh, looked upon and often insist themselves that they are leaders in the uh, pro-Israel movement in Washington. Members of the House, members of the United States Senate who often remind us of how effective they are in terms of safeguarding Israel when necessary and um, and make sure to remind us constantly that they're out there fighting the good battle, making sure that Israel is as safe and as secure as possible. And I do remind you that almost 80%, if not more, of Israelis believe this is a bad deal. Anyway, with all this in mind, we look at the National Jewish Democratic Council. It's an organization, according to this article, that exists to boost Jewish support for Democrats. So how have they reacted to the nuclear deal with Iran? Have they given it cautious support? Strong support, just support in general. In a statement explaining its reasoning, the National Jewish Democratic Council ignores the fact that the deal expires after a decade and that it will give billions of dollars to Iran, some of which will fund terror. The NJDC ignores the fact that the deal will lift an arms embargo and ballistic missile sanctions on Iran over time. The NJDC seems to rely on an analysis by the White House that the deal meets the five conditions set out by the Washington Institute for Near East Affairs. Those White House talking points are questionable. The Iran deal fails each of the Institute's criteria. The NJDC NJDC claims the deal achieves the core goals of negotiations and will ultimately lead to a safer and more secure region. But the deal does not even meet the administration's own goals, and our regional allies are unanimous in opposing it, including the Israel left. Now, the article I read from is Joel Pollack from Breitbart, and the headline is National Jewish Democratic Council Strongly Supports Iran Deal. The National Jewish Democratic Council, an organization that exists to boost Jewish support for Democrats, has announced its strong support for the nuclear deal with Iran, not cautious support or even support, but strong support. You wonder if um, this is a signal, and one would have to assume it is, of things to come. Are, uh, are Jewish Democratic leaders now going to continue to take this um, very definitive approach to the deal with Iran and get out there and offer strong support for it. 
There are certain leaders, there are certain leaders in the United States Senate, there are certain leaders in the United States House of Representatives that always remind us that they are there for Israel, that they are there for the interests of those who are uh, Jewish and live in the United States and care about the future of the United States and care about the future of Israel as well and the security of Israel. It'll be very interesting to see if, in fact, those public officials join with the National Jewish Democratic Council in strongly supporting the Iran deal. Very interesting to see. We don't have any uh, any word yet from some of the prominent Jewish Democrats in the United States House of Representatives or the Senate. As soon as we do, I am confident that we will alert you to those statements. I think those of us who are hoping that those who are uh, political leaders and are Jewish and are defenders of Israel, or at least remind us all the time of defenders of Israel, I think all of us have to be prepared for the direction that this could take and the statements that they could come out with very, very soon. I do encourage everybody to continue to speak to members of the House, your own representatives, members of the United States Senate, your own senders, and remind them, what type of negotiating partner Iran is, just how trustworthy they are. Remind them the uh, how so many of the compo- so many components of the deal will be implemented and will be impossible, impossible to get back into the bottle. Will be impossible to reverse, no matter what you read about how. Uh, Easy it might be to reverse them. We know the reality is it'll never happen. These messages have to be communicated to our public officials constantly all through this week and over the next few weeks. I also remind everybody that the Stop Iran Now rally is uh, happening tomorrow. Tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Stop Iran Now. That's the rally. It's an important one for obvious reasons. The title gives you the entire focus, the entire theme. Stop Iran Now is 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, New York City, between 5.30 and 7.30 tomorrow evening. Rabbi Beryl Wine has been educating us, as he always does during the nine days. His 5,000 years and five hours crash course in Jewish history is up to the Rambam. And this lecture goes from the Rambam to the Vilna Gon. Here it is for you at JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture deals with the uh, 500-year period uh, from the death of the Rambam uh, till the generation of the Gon of Vilna and the rise of Kassidus. This 500-year period is marked by a number of uh, great and traumatic events in Jewish history. Uh, beginning in the 1200s, uh, the situation of the Jewish people in Spain began to decline precipitously. The Christians began to reconquer the country, and the Christians uh, were uh, very anti-Jewish. The Spanish church especially uh, was uh, the most conservative, uh, anti-Jewish church amongst all of the different components of the Catholic church in Europe. And therefore... The Sephardic Jews were faced with a situation 
that they never imagined could happen to them. They were faced with the situation of choosing uh, between their being Jewish and between all of the wealth and influence and power uh, that they had gained in Spain. This uh, situation uh, worsened uh, in the 1300s because of the fact that the Christians became stronger and stronger and now occupied half of the Spanish peninsula, always pushing south. The Christians uh, put a great effort into converting the Jews to Christianity. Their effort was not so much in uh, killing as it was in converting. And uh, it was very strange because in the uh, century of the 1300s, large numbers of Jews, large meaning hundreds and perhaps thousands, converted to Christianity and converted apparently willingly and converted out of conviction. And a number of them were rabbis. Uh, the two most famous converts was uh, were uh, Abner of Burgos and uh, Joshua Halorki, both of whom were uh, recognized Talmudic scholars, recognized leaders of the Jewish community, and in fact had uh, taken in their early careers very strong anti-Christian stand. And yet both of them converted, and they became the chief... Uh, polemicists, the uh, chief uh, debaters on the behalf of Christianity. And under their influence, uh, as I mentioned, hundreds if not thousands of Jews converted to Christianity. Those that converted became more ardent Christians than the Christians themselves. And they were determined to uh, spread uh, Christianity among Spanish Jewry, but it didn't happen fast enough because as the Christians reconquered Spain, uh, the Jews uh, were necessary for the Christians as well. The Jewish infrastructure of commerce, of money lending, uh, the Jewish infrastructure of being diplomats, of having contacts throughout Europe, uh, the Spanish Christians needed that. And therefore, many Jews remained in high places, and Jews were still very visible in the country. And there arose a tremendous wave of anti-Semitism, of anti-Jewishness, among the masses of Spanish Christians. Also, uh, Abner of Burgos became a bishop. Joshua Halorki became a bishop, not a poor priest who could never become a bishop, all of a sudden saw that these Jews were bishops. And as far as he was concerned, they were Jews. And therefore, uh, the lower class of the Christian clergy preached a violent anti-Semitism in the churches. In 1391, uh, there broke out a tremendous pogrom.
that engulfed Spanish Jewry. Uh, thousands of Jews were slaughtered. Uh, old Jewish uh, neighborhoods were completely pillaged. Great palaces, great buildings were destroyed. And thousands of Jews were forced to convert. This was not a willing conversion. This was a conversion based upon the sword. The grandfather of Don Isaac of Barbanel converted to Christianity. Though he sent his son and his daughter-in-law, who would be the parents of Don Isaac, he sent them out of Spain to Portugal so that they could remain Jews. But he remained Christian the rest of his life. So you have here events that are, you know, almost unimaginable, inexplicable. The... Uh, Pogrom of 1391 uh, brought about uh, the complete breakup of Spanish Jewry within Spain. It would take a hundred years for the end to come, but the end was there already. It was apparent. Even though Jews tried to hang on, nobody wants to give up their house or their business or their position. Jews tried to hang on. In the uh, 1400s, the church approved the establishment of what was called the Holy Order of the Inquisition. And the purpose of the Inquisition was to make sure that those Jews who converted to Christianity really remained good Christians. The purpose of the Inquisition was not to torture Jews. The, those that were persecuted by the Inquisition, 99% of its victims were conversos were Jews who had converted to Christianity, but had only done so pro forma. Uh, they really were not Christians. And they uh, practiced Judaism uh, secretly. And these were the trials that were brought before the Inquisition. And the Inquisition used uh, terrible methods to extract confessions. And in the Middle Ages, confessions under torture were held to be true confessions and could be used against the person. And many of them were burned at the stake in the auto de fe in the public squares of many of the towns in Spain. The squares still exist in Seville, in Madrid, Barcelona. And uh, the Inquisition lasted from the 1400s till the 1800s. And uh, they looked, you know, uh, there were there were Jews that will remain Jews even though they were officially Christians for generations, somehow preserving their Jewishness in secret. And these people were uprooted, were always hounded and uprooted by the church. And uh, even in the New World, the Inquisition came to Mexico and came to other parts of the New World that were colonized by Spain because many of the Jews, of the uh, Converso Jews, uh, purposely went to the New World in order to escape from Spain and begin life over again and begin as Jews. And the Inquisition followed them and hounded them. And there were Inquisition killings and burnings in Mexico City and in other places as late as the 1700s and early 1800s. Towards the end of the 1400s, a marriage of convenience 
between uh, King Ferdinand of Aragon and Queen Isabella of Castile was arranged and they married and that combined the kingdoms of Christian Spain she was a very fanatical Christian and she uh, saw it as her holy mission in life to drive all the infidels out of Spain and under their rule uh, by 1480 uh, the Muslims were driven out of Spain. Again, they were either killed or converted or, or they took the boat and went across to Morocco, to North Africa. And the Jews were given till 1492 to convert or leave. Now, uh, to finance all of these wars, just the irony, Ferdinand and Isabella had two Jewish uh, ministers of finance. One was a man called Abraham Senor, and the second was the famous great Don Isaac of Barbanel. Don Isaac of Barbanel was born in Lisbon, and uh, at an early age he uh, rose in the government of Portugal, and he was the minister of the treasury in Portugal, and Ferdinand and Isabella heard about him, and they and the king of Portugal lend him to Spain. We'll continue with more coming up. Our Barrel Wine is in part three, actually part four, of the 5,000 Years and Five Hours lecture series, Crash Course in Jewish History from the Rambam to the Vilna Gone. We'll continue with more Our Barrel Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Dot com. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonishmasser of Zeb and Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read in Yermio, Kach Lecho Megillah Sefer, that Hashem says, Take a scroll and write on it. Write all the words that I have spoken to you concerning Yisrael, Yehuda, and all the nations. And perhaps when Beis Yehuda will hear of all the evil that will be done to them, they will do tshuva. However, as Yehuda would read three or four columns of the scroll to the king, the king would cut them out with a scribe's razor. He would throw it into the fire until the entire scroll was burned. The king and all of his servants who had heard these words were not frightened. They did not tear their clothes. Yoyokim, the king of Yehuda, thought that in this way he would nullify the words of the Megillah. Then we learned, after the scroll was burned, Hashem spoke again to Yermiyahu. Yermio took another scroll, and the scribe rewrote all the words that had been in the previous scroll, and many more words were added. Rashi explains that the original Sefer Kinnis which Yermio wrote and Yoyakim destroyed contained three sets of Aleph base, Echa Yoshva, Echa Yoiv, and Echa Yom. Then he added Ani HaGever. These comprised triplet sets of Aleph base. Yermio declared, Ani Agever, I am the man who has seen the affliction of his anger. The earlier Nevi'im had only predicted the Chorban Beis Amikdosh, but Yermiyahu actually witnessed its destruction. Yermio's statement, Ani Agever, actually attested to the spiritual level of the Jewish nation. Because he personally observed Yerushalayim's demolition, the Beis Amikdosh in flames, and the glory of Israel cast to the ground. The Novi Shayo states, The ox knows its owner, the donkey knows the troth of its master, but my nation do not know me, my people do not understand. This, in fact, 
is the underlying issue that prevents B'nai Yisrael from doing tshuva. They don't know how to identify the owner who has put the troth there. They don't know how to acknowledge that Hashem's anger has resulted in afflictions. When Avram Avinu went with Yitzchok and the two young men to the Akedah, the Pasuk tells us, Vayisa Avram Esenov, and Avram lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place, Merochok, from the distance. Our Chachomim tell us that Avram Avinu asked the two young men if they saw anything. They didn't. When Avram asked the same question of Yitzchok, he replied that he saw a cloud adjoining the mountain. Avram Avinu told the two young men, stay here with the donkey. We learn that Yitzchok Avinu did perceive the cloud was adjoining the mountain. One needs to be able to see the spiritual sights in this world, to understand when there is destruction, when there is galus and exile, where it stems from. We must also understand that our tshuva can help bring the future geula. The Chavetz Chaim once said, the person that refrains from Lashon Hara and senseless hatred and instead promotes peace, he will be so honored when he'll come to Olam Haba, it will be made known that in his merit, the Beis Hamikdosh was rebuilt. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M., thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. Um, we'll go back to Rabbi Burl Wine in a moment in terms of the um, lecture series on 5,000 years and five hours. Uh, we keep talking about tomorrow night's rally for good reason. We want as many people as possible. We want to motivate as many people as possible to be in New York City tomorrow night, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue in New York. Stop Iran now is the theme of the rally. Uh, an article that um, was published by The Hill says as follows, the Obama administration was forced to play defense on Monday after lawmakers in both parties criticized its decision to let the U.N., not Congress, have the first say on the Iran nuclear deal. Republicans pounced on the decision following the U.N. Security Council 15-0 to vote, arguing the White House was giving short shrift to congressional assent in a rush to build international support for the agreement. The White House appeared to hope that the U.N. vote would build pressure on Congress to back the deal, but the strategy risked backfiring with some Democrats scolding the administration for the decision. Representative Elliot Engel, top Democrat on the Foreign Affairs Committee, joined panel chair Ed Royce, California Republican, in a statement saying they were, quote, disappointed that the U.N. Security Council voted, quote, before Congress was able to fully review and act on this agreement. They added, regardless of this morning's outcome, Congress will continue to play its role. Administration officials fought back, countering that lawmakers still have two months to make up their minds. Secretary of State Kerry insisted no ability of the Congress has been impinged on. Kerry claimed that the administration was between a rock and a hard place. Either the White House risked getting flack at home, he said, or Iran and the other negotiating nations would balk at the idea of holding their landmark international agreement hostage to one country's legislature. Frankly, Kerry said, some of these other countries were quite resistant to the idea as sovereign nations that they were subject to the United States Congress. When you're negotiating with six other countries, it does require, obviously, a measure of sensitivity and multilateral cooperation that has to take into account other nations' desires. Most of the criticism Monday came from Republicans eager to criticize the administration's handling of the Iranian issue. Um, the uh, 
Senator Marco Rubio, who's running for the White House, used the phrase capitulation Monday, pointing to both the Iran vote and Cuba's opening of a U.S. embassy in Washington. John Boehner said this is a bad start for a bad deal. Monday morning's U.N. vote came just hours after the State Department formally sent the Iran deal to Congress to be reviewed. So um, there you have it. You have some people in Washington not very happy with the way this has gone procedurally. Again, I remind everybody, if you want your voice heard, arrange those meetings with members of the United States House of Representatives. Speak with your representative, no matter what state you're in, no matter where it is that you're listening to this radio show. Speak to your member of the House of Representatives. Don't just assume that they will or will not vote the way you think they will. And don't assume that even if they vote in a way that you're not in favor of, uh, that your uh, that your voice won't have some influence down the road. Please get involved. Speak to your member of the United States House of Representatives. Speak to your United States senators. Both of them in your state uh, can only help, even if it doesn't help immediately. It can certainly help in the long run. So please do as uh, as is being recommended. It is a really good recommendation. Get together with your members of the House, members of the United States Senate from your state, and uh, make your voice heard. In addition, the rally is tomorrow night. The rally is tomorrow night, 5.30 p.m. until 7.30, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue, New York City. Stop Iran now. Many distinguished sponsoring organizations, many distinguished uh, featured speakers. Do your best to be there tomorrow night, New York City, for the Stop Iran Now rally. Tuesday morning, or a barrel wine has been an incredible lecturer for us all through our nine days format. He is in the section called Rambam to the Vilna Goan in the 5,000 years in five hours. An incredibly comprehensive, an incredible and comprehensive look at Jewish history. Rabbi Barrel Wine continues at JM in the AM. His, uh, the information about all his lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or to the web at rabbiwine.com, Rabbi W. EIN.com. The, the Inquisition lasted from the 1400s till the 1800s. And uh, they looked, you know, uh, there, were, there were Jews that will remain Jews, even though they were officially Christians, for generations, somehow preserving their Jewishness in secret. And these people were uprooted, were always hounded and uprooted, by the church. And uh, even in the New World, the Inquisition came to Mexico and came to other parts of the New World that were colonized by Spain because many of the Jews, of the uh, Converso Jews, uh, purposely went to the New World in order to escape from Spain and begin life over again and begin as Jews. And the Inquisition followed them and hounded them and there were Inquisition killings and burnings in Mexico City and in other places as late as the 1700s and early 1800s. Towards the end of the 1400s, a marriage of convenience between King Ferdinand of Aragon and Queen Isabella of Castile was arranged, and they married, and that combined the kingdoms of Christian Spain she was a very fanatical Christian, and she uh, saw it as her holy mission in life to drive all the infidels out of Spain. And under their rule, 
1480, uh, the Muslims were driven out of Spain. Again, they were either killed or converted or they took the boat and went across to Morocco, to North Africa. And the Jews were given till 1492 to convert or leave. Now, uh, to finance all of these wars, just the irony, Ferdinand and Isabella had two Jewish uh, ministers of finance. One was a man called Abraham Senor, and the second was the famous great Don Isaac Abarbanel. Don Isaac Abarbanel was born in Lisbon, and uh, at an early age he uh, rose in the government of Portugal, and he was the minister of the treasury in Portugal, and Ferdinand and Isabella heard about him, and they had the king of Portugal lend him to Spain. He moved to Spain, and he was also the head of the Jewish community. He was a great Talmud Chochem. He was an outstanding personality. He and Senor lobbied against the decree expelling the Jews. By the way, uh, Abraham Senor was the one that raised the money for Christopher Columbus's voyage to the New World, which also took place in 1492. There's a famous painting, I forget which museum in Europe it's in, uh, the famous painting of, uh, of the Barbanel and Abraham Senor uh, pleading with the king and queen to... Uh, not enforce the decree of expulsion, and of Torquemada, the chief inquisitor, who, by the way, was also descended from Jews. Torquemada's great-great-grandfather was a Jew. And uh, Torquemada rushes in holding the cross upraised, and he says to Isabella, uh, will you crucify him now a second time? And she then uh, insists that the decree uh, be enforced fully. When the decree was enforced, Abraham Senor converted and became a Christian because he could not give up being the wealthiest banker in Spain. Then Isaac of Barbanel took his wandering staff in his hand and he and his family left everything. He moved to Italy. He wandered, he was a minister of finance for the king of Naples. Then he came back to Venice and Florence. And he died uh, in the uh, Po Valley. We don't know where his grave is. The Jewish cemeteries there were destroyed in the 1600s uh, by the invading French armies. But he died alone and penniless. The Abarbanel, in his introduction to the book of to his commentary in the book of Malachim, and also in his commentary on the book of Eicha, uh, gives us graphic scenes of what happened to Spanish Jewry. Half converted, half left. Columbus writes in the log of his book, of his uh, ship log, that on the day that he wanted to leave Spain, the harbor of Cadiz, he was unable to do so because the harbor was so full with ships carrying Jews away that the harbor master could not direct the traffic to allow him to leave. So he left the day late. On Columbus's voyage, by the way, there were a number of Jews that were in his crew. 
Jews who were officially Christians, but who were Jews and who practiced Judaism. And also, uh, Columbus himself came from uh, Jewish ancestry, uh, Jews, converso Jews who left Spain and settled in Italy. Columbus was born in Genoa. And uh, Columbus himself had many Jewish customs that are recorded in the log of his book uh, that apparently were family tradition. So the irony was that as the old world started to close down, the new world was going to open. Spanish Jewry went all over the Mediterranean basin. It also went into uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, many Spanish Jews ended up in Lithuania. But if they ended up in Lithuania, they all became Ashkenazi. We're all Ashkenazi. And that's a uh, phenomenon that exists even till our time. Is that when the, the Svartic and Ashkenazi cultures meet, somehow the Ashkenazi dominates. So you see in our time, all the Svartic Rosh Yeshiva wear uh, black hats and long frocks and have two buttons in the back. You know, why don't they wear turbans and white uh, flowing robes? But that's a, uh, it's a, it's one of the phenomena that exists in the Jewish world. Uh, in fact, uh, the Torah Tamima, uh, Baruch Halevi Epstein, uh, writes in his autobiography that their original family name was Benvenistic. Benvenistic, which is a pure smart name. And he said they were Svartim, and they came, their ancestors were Svartim. They came to the German city of Epstein, and there they took the name Epstein, and then they continued to go east, and they ended up in Lithuania. The, the father was the Orach HaShulchan, the greatest posek of Lithuanian Jewry, and he was the Torah Tmimon. They were all Ashkenazic Jews, but their real name was Membenishte. And he says, any Ashkenazi whose last name is Epstein and is a Levi is really a smarty. The, uh, the reaction... We have to just combine this with the fact that at this time, 14th and 15th centuries in Europe, in Central Europe, were the centuries of the Hundred Year War between France and England, which destroyed France. Uh, it was the time of the Black Death, the bubonic plague, which spread throughout Europe and killed one-third of the European population. Entire cities were wiped out. And because it was the 14th century, and no one had a clue why it was happening. And therefore, the uh, Christians blamed the Jews. And they said the Jews, even though Jews were also dying of the plague, but Jews died in relatively uh, smaller proportionate numbers for various reasons. Their sanitation was better and uh, other things were better. And because of that, a tremendous wave of pogroms swept Germany so that the Jews of Germany were forced to move. And the Jews of Bohemia were forced to move. There was a large Jewish community in Bohemia. The Altnaishul in Prague dates back to the 13th century. And the Jews moved east. And they moved into what is called Poland. But Poland then was also Poland, Lithuania, White Russia, that area. They were invited to come there by the Polish kings and noblemen in order to help develop the country. And for the first uh, 300 years of Jewish settlement in Poland, uh, the Jews were protected. Uh, the Jews were able to build a strong infrastructure, a Torah life. The Jews were also economically strong. 
it seems that in every exile, the first couple of hundred years uh, is not bad. And then there comes a time and then the lights get turned off. And the Jews felt such a part of Poland, and they felt so safe in Poland, that they said the name Polin, in Hebrew, means here we'll sleep over the night of the exile. Po, here, Lin, we're going to be able to sleep, there'll be no problems here. The Jews were strong in Krakow, and Lublin, and Vilna. The Jews also were very strong in the Hanseatic port cities along the Baltic, uh, which stretched from Norway through Denmark, through Germany, uh, to Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland. Now, the Jews were in Memel, the Jews were in Hamburg, uh, the Jews were uh, even in... Uh, what later became Hellingsford, Helsinki. And the Jews were the suppliers of the ships, of the merchants of the Hanseatic League uh, that operated all of these ports. The Hanseatic League was a completely independent league. It didn't belong to any government. It was a group of merchants that got together and had ports all over the Baltic Sea. And uh, for a period of a number of centuries, uh, was very powerful and very wealthy. So the Jews, the Ashkenazic Jews, are also in tremendous trouble, but they move to Poland. In Poland they find rest for themselves for a few centuries. The Sephardic Jews moved all over the Mediterranean basin. To Greece, to Salonika, uh, to the Balkans, uh, to the Near East, uh, to Morocco, North Africa, and they moved to the land of Israel small number, but a significant number. And these Jews said, in an echo of our time, that after such a disaster, it must be that these are the Messianic times. Because disasters always usher in Messianic hopes. And therefore, we're going back to the land of Israel. The second thing happened at this time, also because of uh, the Spanish and the, uh, the Ashkenazic problem, is that Kabbalah spread throughout the Jewish world. The study of Kabbalah, the acceptance of Kabbalah, in fact, we could say the domination of Kabbalah over the Jewish people, something which remains until our time, with a few exceptions. But basically, it's still true. And Kabbalah is a different world. It sees the world far differently, sees events far differently, and it dictates behavior in a different fashion. In the city of Tzvas, in the 1540s, there was a man called Ramosha Cordovera, or the Ramak. Ramosha Cordovera was the leading Kabbalist of his time. And because of that, he attracted many scholars who were interested in Kabbalah. One of those scholars was a young Egyptian Jew by the name of Rabbi Yitzhak Luria. And he was called Rabbi Yitzhak Ashkenazi because of the fact that his family, his mother, came from Ashkenazi. And that's not a Sephardic, even though Ashkenazi is a Sephardic name, it's a Sephardic name that denotes those who are not pure Sephardic. And he uh, came to Tzvash to study under 
Ramosha Cordovero. When he came to Tzvaz, Ramosha Cordovero died. And he, the Ari, only lived in Tzvaz for three years. His whole, his whole uh, structure was created in only three years' time, and he died a very young person. But the Ari uh, developed a type of Kabbalah that swept the world. And uh, that Kabbalah uh, dealt with the fact that uh, there were sparks of holiness that existed in all things and in all people, even in the most evil of people, and that the task is to somehow release those sparks to make a holy conflagration. And the Ari was extremely influential, and he developed uh, a... Uh, cadre of disciples and students, his main student, Reb Chaim Vital, but he had other students as well. And Tzvas became the center of Kabbalistic study in the Jewish world and the spread of Kabbalah throughout the Jewish world. Into Tzvas comes another man by the name of Rabbi Yosef Kara, who was a child when he was exiled from Spain and who lived in uh, Turkey and in Greece and he wrote a great commentary called the Beis Yosef, commentary to the tour. And he also wrote a great commentary to the work of the Rambam called the Kets of Mishnah, in which he listed all of the Rambam's sources. When he came to the land of Israel, he had a teacher called Rabbi Yaakov Beirav. And Rabbi Yaakov Beirav said that now is the time that we're going to renew the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin died out in about the year 450. In order to have a Sanhedrin, you have to have smicha from somebody who is a member of the Sanhedrin. And therefore, when the Sanhedrin died out, the smicha died with it. And there was, no, there was no way to restore the Sanhedrin. The Rambam, however, wrote that the way to restore the Sanhedrin is that if all the leading rabbis in the land of Israel will agree on one person, that he is the scholar of the generation, then they can grant him smicha, and then he, in turn, will give smicha to another 70, and we'll have the Sanhedrin all over again. And Rabbi Yaakov Beirav uh, attempted to put this idea into action. He called the convention of all the rabbis, by the way, the Rambam says exclusively, the rabbis in the land of Israel. Rabbis outside the land of Israel have no say. He called the convention of all the rabbis, and uh, they all agreed that he should receive the smicha, and they granted him the smicha, and he in turn granted smicha to others, including Rabbi Yosef Kara. However, one rabbi was not invited to the convention, and he was the rabbi of Jerusalem, Rabbi Levi Ibn Chavid, and he opposed the idea. And he opposed it strongly. And he opposed it on many grounds. And he mobilized uh, dissenting opinion throughout the Jewish world against the idea. So that it became clear uh, that the smicha would not take hold. And for instance, the smicha died with that generation. They did not continue it. So we're back again to square one. When the state of Israel was founded, there was a whole debate whether or not we should try and renew the Sanhedrin. But again, the, uh, those that were opposed to it 
uh, were very vocal and powerful, and it would, would have meant the tremendous machlokas. Rav Herzig and Rav Maimon, etc., all dropped the idea, even though they originally proposed it. Rav Yosef Karo devised a substitute for the Sanhedrin. And that was his great book, the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch was the written Sanhedrin. Every law was decided, clearly. And this monumental work coincided with the invention of the printing press and the fact that the Jews immediately went into the printing press, even though there were many that opposed the printing press, because the first two books that were published on it were Bibles. The third book was a work of pornography, which outsold the first two by many. And therefore they said that the printing press was a danger. And the church also said it was a danger, and it was. The printing press really uh, helped bring down the church, because now there was a chance for wide dissemination of all types of ideas, even the most radical of ideas. But the Shulchan Aruch spread in the Jewish world within 20 years all over the Jewish world because of the printing press. And it was accepted. However, when it came to Poland, to the Ashkenazim, the Ashkenazim looked at many of the Svartic customs and at many of the Svartic halachic decisions and said, that's not the way we do it. So there was a choice here. The choice was to write an Ashkenazic Shulchan Aruch or to do what the great Rabbi Moshe Yisraelish of Krakow did in the uh, 1550s is he wrote what were called Hagos, interlineations in the text of the Shulchan Aruch itself in which he represented the Ashkenazic point of view and he described the Ashkenazic customs. So from that moment on, the Shulchan Aruch became the Shulchan Aruch for everyone because it had in it uh, both the Ashkenazic and the Smartic customs and uh, it remains until today the basic book of halacha within the Jewish world. The spread of Kabbalah and the great messianic longings of the Jewish people brought about uh, the greatest false messiah debacle in Jewish history. About a hundred years after the Shulchan Aruch, uh, there was a man by the name of Shabzai Tzvi who lived in Turkey. Today we would diagnose him as a manic depressive. But he was a, uh, a genius. He was a great Talmudic scholar. He had smicha by the time he was 18. Uh, he had many rabbis that vouched for his uh, piety and for his uh, knowledge. And when he was manic, I mean, he could stay up, uh, you know, for three, four days in a row without sleeping. He could write hundreds of pages at one time. And when he was depressed, he would go into seclusion for weeks. Except that in the Middle Ages, going into seclusion was a sign of piety. No one said he was depressed. They all said he's meditating, he's having holy visions. And then he would come back to his manic state and do all sorts of things again. J.M. in the A.M., part one of the uh, lecture on uh, Rambam to the Vilna Gon. 
completed. Right, Barrel Wine is in the midst of a series entitled 5,000 Years in Five Hours. It's a crash course in Jewish history like uh, like no other. RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com, um, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN for information about all of, about for information about all of Rabbi Wine's incredible lectures, and they are incredible. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Hey, a happy birthday going out to Yaakov Auerbach. Happy Hebrew birthday. Anybody in uh, Kinar David Harmony service, you make sure, and human care service, you make sure to say hi to Yaakov today and wish him a happy 26th Hebrew birthday. I want to take this opportunity to wish uh, Rabbi and Mrs. Klibanoff of Livingston, New Jersey, Mazal Tov on the birth of a brand new baby boy. And uh, to all that young man, all, to all of those young man's sisters, a very special Mazel Tov from all of us here at JM and the AM. The Klibanoff family celebrating, and uh, we wish them the very best from all of us here at JM in the AM. Uh, a lot of reminders out there, especially about tomorrow night's rally, as we continue to encourage people to be in touch uh, by email, by telephone, in person with your members of the United States House of Representatives. As we continue to uh, encourage all of you to be in touch with your United States senators, I know there are people from many different states who listen to this radio show. You have two senators, two U.S. senators in your state. Please be in touch with them about the Iran deal. Um, tomorrow night, 5.30 p.m., we all have an opportunity to rally together. 5.30 p.m., stop Iran now. Many distinguished organizations are sponsoring, many distinguished guest speakers Starts at 5.30, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue in New York City. Let's make sure it's a record-breaking crowd, please. Let's make sure it's a record-breaking crowd. want to thank those uh, organizations that are utilizing our JM and the AM community calendar online. It's a great resource. Reminder that the PUA event is happening tomorrow night at 8 p.m. at the Honig Family. In Lawrence, New York, a PUA benefit barbecue happening. There'll be a CM and barbecue to benefit the vital work of the PUA organization. That's happening tomorrow night. It's up there on our community calendar section of org. Rabbi Shimon Kesson will speak at Congregation Beit Eliyahu. Starts at 8.30 p.m., uh, presented by Chazak, a lecture by Rabbi Shimon Kesson. The topic is, is Mashiach here? That's happening this Thursday night, uh, 8.15, lecture at 8.30 and um, men and women are welcome. Admission is free. Information on our community calendar, if you go to the community calendar section of jmnam.org. The annual Tisha B'Av Shear with Robertson Tehila Yeager is entitled Building Our Inner World and the Worlds Around Us. It happens at Ohel Miriam starting at 115 uh, at uh, Pennington Avenue in Passaic, New Jersey. It's this coming Sunday, Tisha B'Av at 115 for that. And Tisha B'Av at the Kalbach Shul starts at 3 p.m., um, the Kalbach Shul in New York City. You'll get the details again if you uh, log on to the community calendar section of jmnam.org. You'll see some of the details there. Also, our very own Naomi Nachman, the brilliant Aussie Gourmet, is uh, leading a bake sale uh, that's happening um, this coming uh, Thursday and Friday. 
an Erev Tishabov bake sale. It's being done to benefit the loan center that provides physical and emotional support for loan soldiers in Israel, especially now that many are coming back from active duty. The bake sale supports a loan soldier center, which was dedicated to the memory of Michael Levin. Um, it happens this coming uh, Thursday at Plum, at the Plum Boutique, 416 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst, 10 until 8 on Thursday, 10 until 2 on Friday. Information, contact Danielle or Naomi. Um, payments or uh, rather contributions can be made payable to the FJC Loan Soldiers Center. I um, I hope everybody will have an opportunity to come down and make this a great success. The bake sale in honor of the loan uh, to benefit rather the Loan Soldier Center in Israel. Again, that's 416 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst, both Thursday and Friday. Um, so there you have it. J.M. and the A.M. at 6 minutes after 8 o'clock. We get an education during the nine days, right? Beryl Wine's lecture series is remarkable. And in addition to providing his lecture series uh, throughout the uh, nine days, in this nine days format, we get a chance to remind you about some of the events that are really important, that are really vital. Uh, make sure, please, to be there tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. in New York City, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue, please. Make sure to be there. Stop Iran Now is the theme of the rally. Uh, keep in mind that Sunday we'll be davening mincha at the United Nations, or actually across the street from the United Nations, at the Isaiah Wall. This is a decades-long tradition. You are all invited. Bring your talis and tefillin. Mincha, 2 p.m., Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue, between 42nd and 43rd Streets in New York City, this Sunday on Tisha B'av. Please join us. Please join us. It is a uh, very inspiring tefillah. And that happens, of course, this Sunday on Tisha B'Av. And there we go. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture series is entitled 5,000 Years in 5 Hours. We're midway through the Rambam to the Vilna Gon period which is a part four, part four of Rabbi Wine's um, uh, lecture series. Uh, information at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues for us here at JM in the AM. In any event, he appears in Turkey first, Eventually, the rabbis caught on to him and they kicked him out because he started having uh, visions with angels and then he had uh, seances and the rabbis uh, sensed that there was a problem here. From there, he went to Egypt. And he would have been, you know, uh, perhaps there have been a lot of little false messiahs in the Jewish world. He would have been a minor character except that a great publicity agent got hold of him. Just as Paul got hold of Christianity and sold it to the world, so this man called Nathan of Gaza got hold of Shabzai Tzvi and he sold him to the world as the Messiah. 
And Shabzai Tzvi eventually came to believe in it himself, that he was the Messiah. And he uh, moved to Jerusalem, and he uh, announced that he was going to uh, redeem the Jewish people. And the Jewish people believed him. About a third of the Jewish people were his followers. Great, great rabbis, great leaders of Israel. Uh, the Dutch East Indies Company, which was owned by Jews, uh, for a period of time had no ships to send uh, to the Dutch East or West Indies to bring back spices and gold, etc., because all the ships were leased by the Jews who wanted to go to the land of Israel. Jews throughout Europe sold their homes, their businesses, and in the diplomatic pouches of the time, we have recordings of all of the foreign consuls as to what was going on in the Jewish world. Now the only problem with all of this publicity is that the Sultan of Turkey also heard about it. And since he owned Palestine, he wasn't about to give it away. And therefore he had Shabzai Tzvi arrested. And he was imprisoned in Adrianople in Turkey. But it was a house arrest, and he lived in a palace. And Nathan uh, stoked the fire. He said, this is the test. Now we're going to see whether you people really believe. If everything will go smooth, then uh, there's no test. But now is the test, and only those that believe are going to be Zochel, be privileged to see the Messiah. And Jews came to him from all over the world. They brought him all sorts of gifts. And he started to tamper with halacha. He uh, had the young girls take care of him. Uh, he uh, canceled the fast day of the ninth of Av. Uh, he said it was permissible to eat non-kosher food. He made the bracha matir isurim. That the prohibitions of the Bible are now permissible because the Messiah said so. When that happened, the rabbi started falling away from him. But the people still believed. Eventually, the sultan got tired of the game. See, the sultan let it go on for a long time because the sultan was making money. Everybody came to visit, had to pay a tax. There was, you know, it was an industry. They sold postcards, you know. Now, he got tired, the sultan. And he gave Shabzai Tzvi the choice of either converting publicly to Islam or being executed. And Shabzai Tzvi converted to Islam. And he spent the rest of his life as a Muslim, and he had a job in the Turkish court of the Sultan. Again, Nathan of Gaza said, now we'll see who really believes. Because now only the true believers are going to remain. Frightening. And there are occurred within the Jewish world a tremendous wave of reaction against Shabzai Tzvi and his followers so that it was like a witch hunt anybody that once was with Shabzai Tzvi it was a, a very very difficult time great rabbis were accused of being uh, secret followers Sabbateans they were driven from position so that the entire time it was only a uh, turmoil in the Jewish world.
And uh, in Yiddish, there's a great saying that if you burn yourself on hot soup, then you blow even when the soup is cold. And that's what happened to, mes- to the messianic idea in the Jewish world. The Mashiach, when he comes, is going to have his work cut out for him to convince the Jewish people that he's the Mashiach. Because from that time on, uh, the rabbi, anybody that spoke about Mashiach, like they put it away in the closet because of the damage that was done. In Poland, there was another group. There was a man, Jakob Frank, who was a, uh, originally a follower of Shabzai Tzvi. And after Shabzai Tzvi, he claimed he had messianic pretensions. And he eventually converted to Christianity. And he had his followers convert to Christianity. And he tried to uh, have all the Polish Jewry convert to Christianity. And again, there was a tremendous war within Polish Jewry to get rid of the Frankists to get rid of uh, those that were his followers. But you can imagine the turmoil that this created. On top of this, in the years 1640, in the years 1648 and 1649, uh, a rebellion, rather, by the Ukrainian peasants against their Polish landlords occurred. Now, the date 1648 is very important. Because from then on, it's downhill for Eastern European Jewry. It took 300 years to get to the end, but that was like, from then on, it's all downhill. So the first 300 years uh, were, uh, re- in retrospect, were pleasant years. The Jews had their own autonomy, the Council of the Four Lands. The Jews had great privileges. There was relatively little physical anti-Semitism. The Jewish community blossomed and grew. But from 1648 on, it only tsars, only troubles. And the troubles culminate in our century with the destruction of Eastern European Jewry. Anyway, the Ukrainian peasants were led by a man called Bogdan Khmelyanitsky. Khmelyanitsky uh, was a soldier of fortune, a mercenary. Uh, but he led the forces of Ukrainian nationalism. And there was a tremendous revolt against the Polish landlords. Now, the Jews in Poland were mainly in three occupations, all three of which were very unpopular, as you can imagine, with the peasants. One was that they were the money lenders, and therefore they were the money collectors. The peasants never could get out of debt. The interest rate in the, uh, that time was 30 to 40 percent. So if you borrowed money, you'd never get out of it. And the Jews were the ones that had to collect the money. The second uh, field of endeavor was that they were in charge of the liquor business. And uh, because of that, uh, the, the population uh, had a very high rate of alcoholism, as it still has today. And uh, the Jews were the ones that were the suppliers. And there would come time when somebody needed a drink and he didn't have the money, and the Jew wouldn't give him the drink. And then the third uh, occupation was that they were the agents that managed the estates of the Polish landlords. So the Polish landlord owned tremendous estates. The people that worked on it were peasants or serfs, and the Jew was the middleman who managed it. 
Now, all three of these uh, areas of uh, endeavor uh, brought about a great deal of enmity from the uh, Polish peasant. On top of it, uh, the church was anti-Semitic, religious anti-Semitism was present, and therefore when the revolt against the Polish landlords occurred, uh, the Jews were caught in the middle. And 250,000 Jews were killed. Until the time of the Holocaust, that was a big number. And especially you're talking about a time where there only were maybe five and a half million Jews, five million Jews, maybe even less, in that area of the world. So five, seven percent of the Jewish population was wiped out. Not only that, but the whole Jewish infrastructure was wiped out because hundreds of thousands of Jews became refugees. Uh, you had to uh, run for your life. The old established institutions were lost. It was a uh, major catastrophe. And the Jews never really recovered from that catastrophe. That's why I mentioned that the, uh, the high point of Polish Jewry, of Eastern European Jewry, was in the middle 1600s and declined since. We have to add other things that happened. First of all, the Renaissance happened in Europe. The Renaissance undermined the church. When it undermined the church, it undermined all religions and all established religions. And uh, when they proved that Copernicus was right and that, and that uh, the, uh, the sun is the center of our galaxy and that the earth revolves about the sun, so there were many Jews who also were of the opinion that the earth was the center and not the sun. And even though uh, there is uh, much Jewish writing, early Jewish writing, that indicates that that's not correct, but nevertheless, uh, when that was proven wrong, so people said, well, if they're wrong about that, then they can be wrong about a lot of other things too. Which is always the danger of mixing uh, Torah with science, or with scientific theory, and making Torah relevant to the exact time that you're talking about. Because today's relevance is tomorrow's obsolescence. And we'll prove everything according to the theory of science today in 1999, and a hundred years from now our great-grandchildren will laugh because they'll say, you know, well, we've discovered so many new things that obviously that was not true. That's the danger. Also, uh, Europe was racked by the wars of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, uh, throughout Germany and other places, so that the church was really placed on the defensive. And new ideas came into the world. Now, you cannot lock out an idea. An idea somehow comes through the air that we breathe. And therefore, in the early 1600s in Amsterdam, uh, Spinoza had ideas which were based already on the Renaissance, based on the rejection of uh, established religion. And the uh, Jewish community of Amsterdam excommunicated him, placed him in Cheren. Now, I, in my opinion, excommunication is the most counterproductive weapon in the arsenal of religion. 
because it guarantees that the ideas of the person that you excommunicate will now be popular, known, spread. No one would know of Spinoza. But they made Spinoza. If you go today to the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in the library in Amsterdam, in the library, they will show you the membership list of the synagogue uh, for that year, and there's a line drawn through Spinoza's name. In the late 1600s and early 1700s, there arose the ideas of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment in Western Europe, and later it would spread east as well, but the Enlightenment in Western Europe was now founded upon the idea uh, that religion is a bad thing and not a good thing. That religion, so to speak, hinders human progress. And that uh, we would be far better off without any religions. And uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment, ideas of democracy, uh, the ideas of freedom, uh, the ideas of culture, all began to take root in England, in France, in the New World, in Germany, so that by the early 1700s, you had a large portion of Europe uh, that, so to speak, were non-believers. So you're coming out of the Middle Ages where everyone was a believer and where the church was supreme and where religion was supreme and in such an atmosphere we can understand that in the Jewish world the Torah and the rabbis were supreme but without any problems because that was part of the general culture as well and now you're coming into a world uh, that turns all of that on its head and says we're not interested in the church and we're not interested in religion and that these people who promote religion are really the ones that hold back civilization. It's interesting to note that most of the founding fathers of the United States, the people who made the American Revolution, uh, were non-believers. And uh, the, uh, the reason that the First Amendment, the, the Bill of Rights, is to protect against religion, state religion. Uh, that's uh, Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, who was descended from Jews, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, all were non-believers. Washington was a uh, political believer. Uh, but the ideas represented in the Declaration of Independence were all ideas of the Enlightenment. All men are created equal, and government shouldn't force things. No one should force things on anyone. These ideas of the Enlightenment had great appeal. In fact, they became the basis for what we call modernity, modern civilization, the world as we know it today. These are the ideas that exist. How does Judaism, Torah, reconcile these ideas with the Jewish way of life? Now that, my friends, is the basic question that has plagued the, the Jewish people for the last uh, 300 years in all of its various forms. 
And the question touches every group in the Jewish world. And because uh, till this day there's no uh, universal satisfying answer, so we always find ourselves in the situation that we do today of great turmoil and conflict within the Jewish world itself. You hear it here in Israel, you know, democracy or religion. Like religion automatically means no democracy. And democracy automatically means no religion. Now, on closer analysis, it need not be that way. But because of the fact that that's the way it's been for 300 years, it becomes very difficult to have the discussion otherwise, to see what to do. So, the first Jewish community that would be influenced by the ideas of modernity was the German Jewish community. Uh, paradoxically enough, Germany was the most liberal country in, wasn't a country, it was made up of 50 different little countries, but the German Confederation of States uh, were the most liberal in their attitude towards Jews. Uh, the first states that, gain, that gave Jews equal rights, uh, that made them citizens, that allowed them to attend university, uh, that gave them uh, rights, uh, commercial and other rights, were all in Germany. Prussia, Germany. And therefore, this was the first community that was uh, struck with the conflict with modernity. Now, the father of uh, what we could call the Enlightenment in the Jewish world was a man by the name of Moses Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn himself, uh, Mendelssohn was a, uh, a very short, ugly person. He was a hunchback. Uh, the uh, Prussian emperor said about him, never have I seen such great wine in such an ugly vessel. Mendelssohn was a profound Jewish scholar and Talmudist. We have letters that he wrote to all the leading rabbis of the time, and the rabbis responded to him with great respect. Mendelssohn was a genius. And the problem with a genius is that many times a genius thinks that everybody else is a genius also. If you have a professor who's a genius, he'll probably have a course that's not well taught because he can't figure out that you didn't understand this complicated theory the first time he said it, and that somehow he has to do it over and over again. It's a, it doesn't work that way. Geniuses assume that everybody else is a genius, and if you're not a genius, then you have no right to live, so who needs you anyway? Mendelssohn made a fatal assumption. His assumption was that if he could be Moses Mendelssohn, and he could be a friend of the Crown Prince of Prussia, and he could graduate with a, with a degree from the highest German university, and he could write books on philosophy, and at the same time never miss Davning Minche, and write a commentary to the entire Bible, and co communicate with all the leading rabbis, uh, that every Jew in Germany would be able to do that matchless trick of being able to coexist so perfectly in both worlds that it was no problem. And he didn't see what a problem it was. He didn't even see it in his own family. Four of his six children converted to Christianity. He had no Jewish grandchildren. But Mendelssohn opened the door for what later became known as Reform Judaism. Reform Judaism in Germany was based on the idea 
that because of the Enlightenment and because of civil rights and because Jews now had a chance to become part of the German society, and this was especially true after the Rothschilds established their bank in Frankfurt and Jews all of a sudden became recognized as uh, legitimate financiers, uh, that because of all of this, you have to give up the old. So first they said you have to give up the old way of dress. Can't dress the way Jews always had a traditional garb. It may not be the traditional garb that we see today, but Jews always dressed somewhat differently than the rest of the society. And you have to give up the language. Jews spoke Yiddish. You have to speak perfect German. Can't speak Yiddish anymore. There's no place for that. And then they said, you have to give up, you know, we have to make Saturday Sunday because the whole population is Sunday. And then you have to make the synagogue look like the church, etc., etc., until uh, by uh, the early 19th century, uh, there was no vestige of Judaism left amongst the early reform. And in order to be in tune with the Enlightenment, uh, they proclaimed that theirs was prophetic Judaism uh, versus rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism is the Talmud, the Shulchan Aruch, all the laws, the mitzvot, that's all wrong and old-fashioned. But the ideas of the prophets, social justice, equality, fairness, compassion, uh, that is what Judaism stood for. That was going to be Judaism's sole contribution to the world. And therefore, uh, Judaism became little more uh, than a form of a very liberal Christianity. And because of that, the wave of conversions in the 1700s in Germany of Jews to Christianity was enormous, proportionate to the society. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews converted, and uh, again, uh, conversion uh, rarely solves any problems it brings with it many other problems. The ideas of the Enlightenment did not reach Eastern Europe as of yet. But the Jews in Eastern Europe were uh, depressed, sad. They hadn't recovered from uh, the pogroms of Chmelianitsky. Uh They were poor. Uh, their living was taken away from them. And they began to feel uh, that they were in a dead end. And many of the Jews in Eastern Europe uh, were on the verge of no longer being observant and were on the verge of uh, losing all hope. Into this void in the 1700s came the movement of Hasidus, which revolutionized the Jewish world. It was a revolution. It revolutionized the Jewish world and uh, changed it in a fashion uh, that is visible even today. The Chassidim had their opponents. We'll talk about that next time. About Chassidus, the Gaon of Vilna, the Misnagdim. And next lecture, God willing, which will complete the series, and will take us from the middle 1700s uh, till uh, uh, the last election. J.M. in the A.M., and it's, of course, uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine and his brilliant lecture series. This is the... Uh the one that he calls the crash course in Jewish history. You heard the rumbum to the Vilna Gon just now. That's the fourth of the five-part series. 
We'll do as much as we can in the fifth part coming up. It's called The Modern Era. We'll do as much as we can uh, of that uh, lecture before we wrap things up. Tomorrow we'll go to a different uh, focus after a couple of days on this incredible crash course. Those of you who want information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, and there there are so many amazing ones. Uh, They're all amazing, but there are many of them. Um, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or you can go to the web. RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We've been announcing some of the quote-unquote Tishabov highlights. I don't know if we should say it that way, but hey, uh, even Tishabov does have some uh, some um, must activities. Yeah, there are some activities on Tishabov that I consider to be uh, really important and a very important part of the day, and for a lot of people, they are must activities, must do activities. I'll give you an example. The uh, OU is continuing its tradition. We discussed this with Rabbi Wild the other day. Both Rabbi Wild and Rabbi Weinrib will be uh, presenting Kinnis this coming Sunday in a presentation on OU.org. It is always inspiring. Uh, there are hundreds of people on the spot as it's happening right there on the spot, both in Jerusalem and in Florida. And it's a unique opportunity to really... Um, delve into the kinnis as you say them on Tishabov. It's a unique opportunity. Uh, I loved the way Rabbi Weil um, uh, presented it last week. Um, spoke about the the impact the kinnis now have because there are people uh, like himself who are translating and who are explaining uh, the kinnis um, in depth on Tishabov morning. So, again, uh, that's this coming Sunday, uh, OU.org, all through the day, of course. Uh, you can uh, get information if you go to OU.org about the live webcast for Kinnis, and we highly recommend it. In addition, of course, uh, 2 o'clock is uh, the designated time for the Mincha at the Isaiah Peace Wall, uh, the Isaiah Wall across from the United Nations, across from the building that uh, whose uh, who's Security Re- Security Council yesterday voted overwhelmingly. 15 to 0 in that vote regarding the Iran uh, deal. Um, that building uh, on uh, 42nd and 43rd streets on 1st Avenue, between 42nd and 43rd streets, right across the street is where we daven mincha at the Isaiah Wall. Starts at 2 p.m. Bring your towels and tefillin and uh, get ready to join us for an inspiring tefillah every year for decades and decades under the leadership of uh, Amcha. And um, people like or by Avi Weiss and Glenn Richter and many others. It is just an incredible and a wonderfully inspiring Tisha B'Av Mincha. Um, I am proud to announce that again, and I never dreamt <laughs> that one of the most successful and sought-after programs <laughs> that we present on the Nachum Siegel Network that you could find on the NSN app and on the website and, of course, at jmnam.org. I never dreamt that one of the most talked-about programs would be the one that we put on toward the end of Tisha B'Av. But again, with the incredible Project Inspire, the amazing Charlie Harari will host the Project Inspire annual End of Tisha B'Av broadcast. It'll be live from 7 to 9 p.m. Sunday night. Close out your Tisha B'Av with NSN, with Project Inspire, and with Charlie Harari. 7 p.m. it begins. It is, I'm telling you, I never dreamt that this would get the attention that it gets every single time. It's just amazing. 
And it's an unbelievable way, a very inspiring way to wrap up Tisha B'Av. Tune in. Make sure you have the NSN app. Uh, make sure you have our um, uh, our app or the or the web, our listen line, and just make sure to tune in starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time this coming Sunday night. That's how Tisha B'Av will end with NSN Project Inspire and Charlie Harari. Kalakavod, Charlie. He has really created a niche, something that so many people in the community worldwide look forward to every single year, to build up to the break fast, to close out the final two hours of the fast with Charlie Harari uh, on the uh, Nahum Siegel Network. So there you have it. Um, well, as we said, the... Um, Incredible lecture series by Rabbi Beryl Wine uh, is entitled Five Thousand Years in Five Hours. It's a crash course in Jewish history. It's a unique opportunity for everybody to uh, to hear Jewish history in concise form in the way that Rabbi Wine presents it. I do remind you that Rabbi Wine uh, information about all his lectures is at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. And uh, you can also go to the web, RabbiWine.com. Again, that's RabbiWine.com. And uh, we highly recommend it. You'll uh, you'll find lectures and now so many of them available. Maybe all of them are already available on MP3. Makes it even easier. 5,000 years and five hours. Rabbi Beryl Wine. Vilna going to the modern era. That's uh, the final lecture. We'll do a few minutes of his final lecture on this topic. Again, a reminder. Tomorrow night, 5.30. I hope you'll be there tomorrow night, 5.30. Stop Iran Now Rally, New York City, 42nd Street, 7th Avenue. Please be there. Make sure to be there. The rally is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m., 42nd Street, 7th Avenue in New York City. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture deals with the uh, modern period uh, basically with the 19th and 20th centuries, the last 200 years of the Jewish story. I mentioned to you at the conclusion of last week's lecture uh, that in the 18th century the ideas of the Enlightenment took hold in Europe and they began to take hold in Jewish Europe as well. And they certainly took hold in Germany where the reform movement was created and where, uh, since Jews then had, were granted some sort of civil rights, uh, the uh, ghetto walls fell, uh, Jews became uh, uh, open uh, bankers, merchants, uh, successful people. All of that combined uh, to uh, weaken any attachment to traditional Judaism, and the reform movement really swept the boards in Germany and also in France. In Eastern Europe, uh, the Jews were still recovering from uh, really the Shabbat speed debacle. And I think that we have to see the Hasidic movement, Hasidut, as an answer uh, to how to deal with the disappointment of the messianic bankruptcy of the Shabzai movement. And Hasidus swept the board in spite of the opposition of the Golan of Vilna 
in spite of the uh, ban that was proclaimed against Hasidus, in spite of the persecution of the Hasidim, Hasidus uh, overwhelmed Eastern European Jewry to the extent that uh, almost all of Polish Jewry, Ukrainian Jewry, uh, were uh, Hasidic. And only in Lithuania and parts of White Russia, Latvia, uh, did the Hasidic movement not take deep roots. But in the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment came east into Eastern Europe. Now, in the long history of uh, the Jewish people, the, the Jews, uh, Torah, had a response to every challenge, and a very strong response. It was able to withstand the challenge of the Greeks and of the Romans, of the Christians, of the Muslims. But the challenge of modernity, of the modern ideas of the world, was a challenge that, to a certain extent, uh, traditional Jewry uh, was unable to respond to. And because of the fact that it really was not able to come up with a good response, uh, even till today, uh, the problem remains unsolved. How does traditional Jewry, how do Torah observant Jews, how do Talmidei Chachomim respond uh, to a modern, intellectual, technologically advanced world that has such ideas as democracy, freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of personal behavior. How do we respond to that? And how do we respond to it on an individual basis? And how do we respond to it as a society? And here in Israel, the challenge is how do we respond to it as a nation, as a national entity? And I think it must be said that after 200 years of the struggle, uh, the response, the magic response has not been found. And the one that somehow uh, was able to uh, win over the hearts of Jews and to put uh, the ideas of modernity into some sort of Torah perspective. And that really is the basic problem that faces us today. All the other things are symptoms of this problem. So when the uh, ideas came into Eastern Europe, uh, they came uh, to a great extent uh, with Napoleon's army. In the early 1800s, Napoleon invaded Eastern Europe, uh, which would be his undoing. No one has ever defeated Russia. It's too big, too many. No one can swallow it. Russia is only to able to defeat itself which it has done successfully a number of times, and the last one we are witness to in this past decade. But from the outside, Russia is, to a great extent, impregnable. You, you can't breach it. You can, uh, the German army in the Second World War destroyed more than a third of the Russian army, uh, captured a third of Russia, 40% of the Russian population was under German control and they lost the war to Russia. So uh, when Napoleon was defeated in Russia and the Grand Army limped back, uh, they left over a, uh, 
a residue of the ideas of the French Revolution and the ideas of modernity. So there was a dispute amongst great Hasidic rabbeim of the time whether the Jews should support Napoleon because of the fact that if they supported Napoleon, he promised them civil rights, equal rights, they would have the oppression of the Tsar removed from their neck, and the Tsar's oppression was awful. Or, as uh, the uh, first Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Balatanya said, uh, that it would be better to hope that the Russians would win and the Jews should support the Tsar evil as he is, because if Napoleon won, he would secularize the Jewish people. The uh, ideas of the Haskalah, of the Enlightenment in Eastern Europe, were far different than the ideas of the Reform in Germany. The Haskalah did not come to make Jews Russians or Poles. What it did try to do was create what the Zionist movement would later call a new Jew. And their slogan was that the new Jew would be uh, just like everyone else when he went out in the street and he would be a Jew in his house. In other words, the public persona of the Jew would now be acceptable to the non-Jewish world and the uh, ideas of modernity would allow Jews to practice Judaism in their house. And that slogan, Tehei ben Adam b'tzeitecha, to be a human being on the outside and a Jew on the inside, that proved very, very popular. It was a winning slogan. The only thing is that in perfect hindsight after 200 years, uh, we see that almost none of those who follow the Haskalah ended up having any children or grandchildren who were interested in being Jews in their home. So that if you were not a Jew on the outside, you ended up not being a Jew on the inside also. But that we see in perfect hindsight. Shlomo Karlbach always used to tell a story that if he went on a college campus and he asked uh, a student uh, what, what religion, what was he, so a student would answer Catholic, so he knew he was a Catholic. He'd answer a Protestant, he knew he was a Protestant. He'd answer a Muslim, he knew he was a Muslim. If he answered, I'm a human being, then you knew he was a Jew. <laughs> and that's the Haskalah in spades. That, that's what happened. Because that balance could not be retained. Now, the Haskalah took on different forms. By the way, none of this happened. The secularization of Sephardic Jewry was far different. And uh, basically, Sephardic Jewry never was secularized the way Ashkenazic Jewry was. As the, the last 200 years, the Sephardic, to a great extent, escaped all of the trauma uh, that overcame the Ashkenazic world. Yeah, the upheavals, uh, the Haskalah, uh, the uh, open pogroms, uh, the uh, destruction of the First World War, uh, even the Holocaust. Uh, so with the exception of the Jews of Salonika, Greece, uh, basically the Svartim uh, were, uh, were untouched by it. Also the Zionist movement, all of these things didn't happen to them. And therefore they come from a completely different record, a very different background. And the Ashkenazim come from 200 years of 
tremendous turmoil. Well, not a day without a uh, new and uh, disturbing event and constant friction and from a burden of tragedy that's unimaginable. And therefore, to a great extent, we Ashkenazim are neurotic. To put it mildly. We, you know, we, we got a lot of bath water with us. A lot of baggage. And that's what creates what you see. The Haskalah uh, did certain things. First of all, it revived the Hebrew language. Because part of creating the new Jew was that the new Jew would know Hebrew, would write Hebrew, would speak Hebrew. And the Haskalah, to a great extent, viewed Yiddish as passé. Even though there was a Yiddish Haskalah also. But the Hebrew Haskalah was the most influential. And uh, the Hebrew Haskalah looked to develop itself in terms of art and music, theater, poetry, whereas the only expression, so to speak, of uh, Jewish talent uh, for hundreds of years had been in Torah, or in Torah-related areas, here there was a whole new uh, Jewish culture created that had nothing to do with Torah. Or not only nothing to do with Torah, uh, to a great extent it was anti-Torah. Because the uh, Haskalah felt that in order to create the new Jew, you have to destroy the old Jew. And destroying the old Jew meant, to a great extent, destroying uh, the belief in Torah and in mitzvot and in Jewish tradition, putting all of that in the museum. Now, the traditional Jewish world responded to the Haskalah in a number of different ways. The first way was the establishment of the yeshiva movement of yeshivot in the style more or less as we know them today. The yeshiva movement has changed since Valoshin, but it prides itself somehow on being a carbon copy of Valoshin, even though it is not. After the death of the Gaon of Vilna, Reb Chaim Valoshiner, the Rov in Valoshin, and the main disciple of the Gaon of Vilna, and he wasn't a disciple in the sense that the Gon said a shear every day and he attended the shear. He saw the Gon maybe once a year and maybe for a half hour. But he was the person who absorbed the traditions of the Gon and also the outlook of the Gon on the future of the Jewish people. And one of the ideas that the Gon had was this idea of creating. Uh, so to speak, a new method of teaching Torah. Now, there had always been yeshivot, but the yeshivot were, uh, uh, to a great extent, uh, the outgrowth of the rabbi out of town. Uh, he had a group, uh, he had Jewish education in Eastern Europe was that a uh, young man uh, studied in the cheder till he was ten, and then uh, those that were good, so to speak, that showed promise, they continued. The other ones went to work already, before Bar Mitzvah. Uh, so that you had a tremendous mass of Jews who were not really, uh, certainly not Talmudic scholars. And uh, then they, uh, the better ones stayed till they were 10, 15. They learned with the rabbi of the town. 
And then those that really showed promise uh, went off to other rabbis, the greater rabbis, the bigger towns. But an organized yeshiva with a curriculum, with uh, set classes, etc., that didn't exist. In a famous letter that Rabchaim wrote to all of the uh, communities and rabbis of Lithuania in uh, 1803, he said, Torah is disappearing from within us. The old system is broken down. It no longer works. And the Haskola is going to take away the best minds and the best uh, people that we have and in his words, Torah, what's going to be about Torah? So therefore he said, I'm going to make this yeshiva for the best and the brightest of Lithuania. And I expect that all of you will support me financially and with students. And we will build an institution uh, that will produce the leaders for the coming generations and will set the standard for Torah learning. And this yeshiva Valozhin opened, and it existed for uh, 80 years, and it met the goals that Reb Chaim had set for it. But it was basically a yeshiva for the elite. It never had a, uh, a student body of more than 450, most of the time, its student body was between two and three hundred. We're talking all of Lithuania. But it had the best minds. It had the superior people. Also, the yeshiva unwittingly was the father of many of the leaders of the Haskalah who attended the yeshiva because, again, you had a good mind. There was nowhere else to go, right? You couldn't go to the University of Vilna. They wouldn't let you in. The only way to attend, uh, practically attend university in Russia was to convert. And people were not willing to do that. So if you had a good mind, you went to the yeshiva, even if you didn't believe in anything. And people sat and learned, and they were Talmudic scholars, and in their hearts, uh, they scoffed at the, the whole thing. And then later, they came out, and they were the leaders, leaders of socialism, of communism, of Zionism, of the Haskalah. I mean, Bialik is the most famous example of the of uh, Valozhin, but he is not the only one. But the difference was that a Moscow that went to the yeshiva, so he had he had in, in Hebrew they say a lachluchit. He had he had something within him. He wasn't an empty vessel. Whereas the later role of Haskala, when they no longer came from the yeshivot but they came from their own seminaries, uh, those people had almost nothing within them as far as Jewish tradition and Jewish faith and understanding was concerned. So you had the creation of the yeshivot. That was one weapon. A second weapon which came later in the 1840s and 1850s, uh, the Haskalah pointed out all of the defects of the old Jew. The old Jew was dirty. His clothes were shabby, never took a bath, he was poverty stricken, he was a boor, then he would a fork and knife, he knew nothing of the world, he was insular. And 
uh, you can imagine that the society of the old Jew had defects in it. There was corruption. Uh, many a rabbinic physician was awarded on the basis of bribes. In fact, it was so common uh, that they passed a rule that a candidate for a rabbinic position was not allowed to contribute or make promises to the community. Because uh, he would come and say, you know, he has a rich father-in-law. So he says, you know, I'll build you a new mitzvah. Or we'll build, we'll build a new shul. Or worse, uh, you know, we'll pay off the committee. And on top of it, there was a tremendous enmity towards the religious Jewish establishment. That enmity was caused by the decrees of the Tsar. Rabbi Beryl Wine with the uh, lecture on the modern era from his 5,000 years and five hours. Uh, so glad we were able to present over the last couple of days this incredible lecture series. Information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWEIN.com. A reminder, we'll, be keep it, we'll keep reminding you until we get there tomorrow night at 5.30. The big rally, Stop Iran Now. Takes place tomorrow, 5.30 p.m., New York City. Make sure you're there, 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, Times Square. Everyone knows how to get there. (laughs) There's no shortage of opportunities, both private and public transportation. Please make sure to be there. Set aside some time. If you're working in New York tomorrow, great opportunity at the end of the day. If you'll be somewhere else, great opportunity at the end of the day to come into Manhattan and participate in a very important rally. And we'll keep a close eye on those elected officials and see if anybody in the next day makes any statements of note regarding the deal with Iran. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial broadcasting live in the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. More of our nine days format tomorrow starting at the 6 a.m. Make sure to join us. Uh, have a great Tuesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Sigal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.